Welcome to The Timeline. I'm Robin Smith, and myself and my guest will be stepping you through this episode's section of The Timeline. This week we'll be looking at 1998's seminal sci-fi action comic book classic, Blade. My guest this week is a good friend, an old... Uh, podcast ho- cohort I think that's accurate yeah. <laughs> uh, Limbert Bond Limbert, feel free to introduce yourself What's your name? What's your date of birth? <laughs> and what do you do? <laughs> well, you know my name is Limbert Bond I was born in 1988 Which makes me 10 years old when Blade what, came out What was the exact date on that? March March 1988 March the... The 11th. The 11th, thank you. So, <laughs> we're going to, as the first order of business, before we move on, Okay. we're going to add you to the timeline, the official oh. timeline of everything that has happened and will ever happen. Well, in 19... 88. 88. <laughs> you almost 88. forgot for a second there, didn't you? Right. So, I'm just typing this in, in my special computer. Uh, 11th March... 1988 Bert Bond Bond You are the start of the timeline I hope you're very honoured The official start of the timeline (laughs) Anybody can read my notes Which is just you No I'm technically lying about that So you're the beginning and the end of the entire timeline I hope you'll feel honoured Do I control the timeline? No That's 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 the archivist's <laughs> job. I'm the archivist. You're going to help me step through the history of time and space and all events that ever happen. So, anyway, continue introducing yourself. <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt. What else do you want to know? Well, you know, uh, how long have you known me for? How, like, how long has it been since we did any sort of podcast? It's got to be at least four years almost now. Four years, I guess it's been about four years now since we've done a podcast, probably. I'm guessing. That sounds about right. Actually, maybe, it might maybe be longer, not, actually. Yeah, it probably is longer. We, we had that consistent period in 2012 where we did yeah. a few, and then little one off things when I was just desperately <laughs> trying to find new ideas and try. So, it's probably been about six years, actually, how long is it? Mm. Since we've done something consistent or anything, really. <laughs> anything of any good, it's even longer than that. <laughs> Um, so what have you been doing since the last time anybody heard you on any sort of show like this? I guess I would have got a new job as a cabin crew now. So flying, polluting the air, I guess. <laughs> yeah, serv- serving, serving, serving people, up. helping people out, yeah, while yeah. taking them on holiday. How many, how many people do you deal with who are, say, panicking on an air flight on a day-to-day basis? Not, not many, actually. This sort of people are more used to it these days. Yeah, you yeah. always get a couple of people who are still like ultra scared offline, but hmm. most people are pretty good with it. Or they have, or they're just so drunk they don't even know. That will solve anything. Just one or two rums, gins before the flight, and you're fine. Well, it's good to see you, Linda. It's good to see you. To to explain the timeline, um, with the. The prevalence of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and TV shows and stuff, and the, and the notion of one long 
spanning history in multiple different films and franchises and TV shows. The, the idea of keeping track of things that have happened in media and, and comics and film and games and everything is, is more interesting. And on, on Timeline, we want to kind of put some context to these events that have happened in film. So let's say you have just watched Captain America Civil War. That that has a date and a time, usually. Yeah. And you can tie it to other shows and stuff. But now now that the company like Disney has decided to buy Fox or has gone through with buying Fox Fox? What's Fox? Fox. <laughs> Fox. You're going to see the potential of things like Fox franchises merging and possible crossovers and and at what point do you say you get on that, that was the the problem with comic books for the longest time and still is where do you jump on like is there a, a, a canon that is the beginning of time and the end of time I guess for you not in a you know a whole and then there is this big theory that that you know some people hold on to that anything anybody's ever thought of has happened somewhere in some universe that's probably so much out yeah. there. Like it yeah. must have like. It's an interesting idea. Yeah. So on on timeline, we're going to take the events of everything we watch, everything we read, or me and my guests are, and we're going to create one timeline for everything. Now that's going to be a little difficult because eventually we're going to get to films and and games and books that maybe involve time travel or multiple universes and what do we do when we get there um who knows but today we're, we're, we're starting with what i think is the definitive sci-fi comic book series trilogy uh the blade series um so this this episode will be dealing with the first blade film and we, we sat down individually and uh, watch Blade. So we're going to go over the scenes of the, the film and then we're going to do what we can to kind of insert them into some sort of coherent timeline. But we're also going to talk a little bit about the timeline of the development of Blade, where the character came from in comics and where it all kind of fits in together. We'll, we'll, we'll keep this brief, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> but you never know. I don't want to spend all day editing. So... Um, how did it feel going back to watching Blade? How long has it been since you watched Blade? Have you seen it before? Yeah. I've seen it before, but I must have seen it when I, must, I, must have, I was probably about 12 years old when I saw Blade originally. So then I didn't watch it until... I, I know I always liked Blade, the, the actual film itself, but the, you know, you don't watch something for such a long time, you kind of forget the entire film. So when I was watching the film again, I was like, oh, I don't remember any of this stuff really. Like, <laughs> It's funny how, how simple, I guess blade is in a way because i guess back in that time they could have easily made it like him like overly black and whatever but it's just like stereotypical it's stereotypical but it's not it's no stereotypical it's no stereotype you know really it's just blade yeah the, the hunter they lean on certain elements yeah. of you know coolness that he has inherently yeah. as a character and as as a performer yeah. but you know i know i get what you mean to the extent of it although there is there is a scene uh part way through where he interacts with another uh, young black guy 
um, and they they do sort of yeah. a sort of a cool handshake <laughs> greeting, and you can, it feels a bit more like oh. it's something he said. There's, there's a couple of moments yeah. that feel like it's something Wesley Snipes yeah. may have injected yeah. himself. Um, but yes, so how much do you know about the Blade character before uh, the film? Do you Not know much, much really? No. So it's more almost exclusively, yeah. Um, the the film itself. Well, Blade is as most people probably know or have forgotten by now played as a, a marvel comics yeah. character um but pretty obscure and it's quite impressive actually when you go back there was that all that hubbub i've never said that before hubbub <laughs> about guardians of the galaxy when that came out and how they are relatively obscure as a comic series and as a group of characters uh, that the guardians galaxy in the film aren't the original Guardians of the Galaxy um, characters. So, you know, there's been multiple groups, just like the Avengers, there's been multiple Avengers. So, to pluck an obscure group like that and to pluck a, a, a set of characters from points in its history is interesting. Um, but there was a lot of talk about whether or not that sort of film would do well, why it's very brave of Marvel to choose a character or group of characters that's quite obscure. But when you look back and realise just really how niche Blade is, um, and that it was the first film that was like a, a really good quality version of the notion of a superhero Marvel Comics sort of character. Like we'd had good comic book movies before that, like the Batman and, and Superman, yeah. but they're like tier characters. And this is before Spider-Man had had a proper film outgoing. Like we, there was like the period of Superman and Batman films, and around that same sort of time period, you know, the couple of decades running up to Blade's release, you had, you know, the Spider-Man TV series, the Incredible Hulk TV series, and that's where Marvel kind of really existed in sort of weirdly bastardized yeah. versions of their characters, but they were recognisable. Like they still kind of resonated as names, and then. I think it was the release of it was Batman and Robin. That's what yeah. they, 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 <laughs> the 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 often cited death of that genre in that era, and Blade is considered like the start of this new genre yeah. as a movie. But when you consider that Blade is the first one, and then more or less the next two three years afterwards, it was X Men and Spider Man, yeah. and how big those films were. Um, it's quite impressive. Like you realise that while Blade did well, Marvel didn't earn much money off of it. They got a very small percentage. It was more or less just the rights money and a little tiny bit of extra. Yeah. Um, but Blade, uh, I've got loads of notes that aren't in a very good order. But Blade originally um, had a budget of forty-five million dollars. Oh, that's quite and a lot. For that's quite a lot considering for the time, but its box office gross was 131.2 million dollars oh. in the United States alone, I think. I kind of feel like Blade is a forgotten film, semi, though. Semi like forgotten, like I think it's well remembered when people do remember it, but it's it's an odd one because X Men and Spider Man again are kind of so prevalent and obvious, you know. And there's been so normally, many films in those. Because normally a lot of people cite Spider Man as being like the first good. I, I think it helps that Blade is just on the fringes of the notion of a superhero. It's guess, like yeah. a character from comics, Rich. but it's not what people would say is no. a superhero comic character, although he does 
in the Marvel Universe interact with all of the same characters every other character does. Quite recently, Wesley Snipes has been on Twitter petitioning to play the character <laughs> again in the new new version of the this show or films. So you never know, there's a chance the character will come back. Um, I think they got the rights to Blade back at the same time they got the rights back to Ghost Rider and one other character. I think it was the Punisher at the same time. And they've both had appearances on television yeah. and, and streaming services. So there's potential for Blade to reappear at some point. Um, and it's also worth noting now, uh, we're looking at the three films for this first three-episode pilot series. But the television series of Blade, that you've probably seen or heard of, there was a TV series, a very, very short running, I think about 13 episodes. Um, there, it was on, I think it was Spike or something like that. I don't know exactly. I'll actually, have to look I into I've that. heard of it. Actually, I, we need, it. I need to look into it. There are DVDs of it knocking around. That series is considered canon with the films, oh. unlike most TV series. Before Marvel started doing multi-platform, multi-genre sort of things, even... In television and movies, Blade was forerunner in 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 this co coherent, long running narrative and timeline. Um, but uh, unlike his namesake in the movies, Blade is actually a character that was created. Um, what was his creation date? I need to find. Uh, <laughs> I'll edit this out. Um, so his real name is Eric Brooks. Well, you hear his first name in the film, but you don't know his last name. I think it maybe it's written down somewhere, or his mother's name is. Um, his mother's name definitely because he's in a yeah. driving license. Yeah, you Wait. do see that. We'll get to that at some oh. point soon um, when we go through the film. Yes, you do see. Uh, it's it's also very surprising this film that there's a lot of moments where you get information given to you, and it's set up to pay off later. And it's done repeatedly, and that's very rare these days. There's not a lot of trust no. in the viewer of films these days to keep up with what's going on. And here you're seeing pieces and pieces and pieces of breadcrumbs. Yeah, um, Chekhov's gun is being mounted in front of you, and you're you're seeing it pay off later on multiple occasions. Sometimes multiple things come together to pay off as one right. thing, which is quite impressive. You know, it's one of the good strengths of the film. So uh, the character was uh, created by uh, Marv Wolfman, which is a brilliant name, <laughs> and Gene Colan. Uh, he first appeared in Tomb of Dracula, issue number 10. Much like Spider-Man, oh. he didn't appear originally in his own series or anything. He was a, a guest or side story or you know, a standalone story in another magazine or comic uh, in 1973. Uh, uh, Marv Wolfman's uh, the one-time editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics, and he's probably best known for his work on horror books, such as Tomb of Dracula. Um, but he also worked on Crisis on Infinite Earths and Teen Titans for DC Comics. I do like those series. Mm. Uh, Crisis on Infinite Earths is... Mm. It's, like, I don't think we'll cover it anytime soon. <laughs> but it's just, like notable. Um, Gene the Dean Cohen was a legendary comic book artist whose career spanned from 1944 to 2009. So quite recently he was still working. And as well as being the co-creator of Blade, he also created the Falcon character, who's now just become, spoilers, uh, Captain America. 
in both comics oh. and films. So, I assume you've seen the most recent Avengers. I don't yes, want to ruin any more. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like you, your your poker face is so good that I can't tell whether or not you've seen it. <laughs> and I, I've just quietly ruined that for you. Um, so it's interesting that like, the, his 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 creators were one of them's like quite a prolific writer and important writer in his field, but also that this his co-creators created another notable black you know superhero character who's gone on to do like really really important things in in narrative wise anyway uh the tomb of dracula series was like the the first attempt one of the first attempts of marvel to sort of tackle the dracula mythos but it would be a it was centered around a, a group of vampire hunters or different vampire hunters and uh, you know tackling dracula and it it lasted for like 70 issues it's not a lot, really, is it? Well, well, no. that's good few years. When do you think it's quite a niche topic? I like guess Dracula, and you make it last for that long. The first, the first um, issue Blade is in. It's, it's essentially Dracula on a cruise ship, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Just yeah. pillaging his way for the crew. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting. It's uh, after that, Dracula uh, himself is is a recurring character in the Marvel universe and has appeared in. Thor a couple of times and Doctor Strange where um, I think maybe Blade was in that series saga as well and apparently he was killed off but he's constantly being resurrected you know what it's like with Dracula of course can't keep him dead so uh, in the lead up to this famously we I think we all know that, that Marvel um, was facing bankruptcy at the time and I think they bought toy biz the toy manufacturers and it was most notably Avi Arad, who was a, a CEO of Toy Biz and became more involved in the sort of movie side of things, who was pushing for the notion of Marvel licensing out its characters and, um, you know, trying to, to make, you know, movies out of all these distinct and unique characters. I think it was one of the quotes from Stan Lee as well. Like, Stan Lee was always big on the, night, the idea that these characters will be TV and movie characters one day. Um, so, you know, it, it could be argued that, you know, Avi Arad, of all people, although he's 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 got, you know, a unique history in film uh, since then, it's probably one of the most responsible people for helping to keep Marvel afloat and then bring it out of the, the sort of bankruptcy area. And now look at them. Mm. <laughs> mm. They're printing money now. Mm. You know, well done to Marvel for surviving yeah. and then, you know, like I, I grew up a Marvel Comics fan more than, more than any other comic company. Like I didn't get to read a lot of comics growing up but I kind of knew that I, I preferred yeah. the Marvel sort of stories. Always, always more DC, I guess. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why there's a divide really but I don't know, it's just something about Marvel just appealed more, I think. So what, what would you say would be your personal sort of favourites when it comes to DC, Marvel and all that sort of stuff? It sounds kind of like Wally, I guess, like Daredevil. I quite like Daredevil as a character. They're like Batman, but then again, they're quite linked in a way as well. Yeah, more grounded. Yeah. Semi-grounded. Batman's yeah. a little bit more ridiculous, but... Like, Daredevil does feel Batman like like light, almost, <laughs> you know? And I love Daredevil, don't get me wrong. 
I quite like the punish as well. So I quite like I quite like the old I guess the more grounded that I could feel like I could I could almost like feel like I could go out and do it myself. You know, I'll never do it like <laughs> I'm not, not. gonna murder him, but like, you know, like you can kinda of see yourself like with a gun, I guess. I guess well, speak for yourself. <laughs> and I've got the Green Lantern as well. They're probably one of my top tier heroes. Oh, interesting. Not many people do go for Green Lantern these days. <laughs> But that kind of appeals to me as well. I like kind of like the less popular, more obscure sort of, or more maligned, yeah. I think is the right word, sort of characters when it comes to comics. Right. So, let's get into the pre-production. Um, so, it was produced eventually by New Line Cinema, um, quite famously... Uh, it had been in development since 1992. Wow. Um, and so, you know, that's a good <laughs> six years production until release, you know. Um, and of all people, LL Cool J, cool, cool? LL cool J was initially pushing to be Blade. I'm glad that went away. Like, drastically <laughs> different. But what's really interesting is at exactly the same time, because I, I actually went back into a very old website, um, that was chronicling the news that was happening at the time. And it was covering all the different Marvel projects. Even back then, there was interest. And it was mentioning the X-Men and, and Spider-Man, and these ones that were big and, you know... Um, and this was, like, still 1992, like, very old website. Or at least article. <laughs> um, and it, at the same time, the same news story was noting that uh, Wesley Snipes was interested in being in the Black Panther movie, or it was called The Black Panther at the time. So imagine the the like shift, the dynamic yeah, shift, if LL Cool J was Blade of all characters and Wesley Snipes had been Black Panther all along. Like, I think Black Panther would have been relatively good with Wait, yeah. Snipes in there still. It would have been different, but not so different. You know, obviously financially they could do a better movie now um, but <laughs> not to knock LL Cool J I still respect and like a Cool J in, in in my own way but I don't think he's quite a Blade no, no. sort of guy like maybe you could picture him as a sort of villain in a Blade yeah. film maybe because he's got that sort of body he, he looks a little less he feels less nimble yeah like he doesn't have we, I assume he doesn't have as much martial arts training the snipes probably not no um according to writer david escoya who you might know as one of the people most responsible for what is like writer on much of the nolan batmans <laughs> and then the batmans that came afterwards the dc cinematic universe he worked on a lot of that he's written a lot david uh, escoya has um New Line Cinema originally wanted Blade to be a spoof film. Really? Like a semi-comedy yeah. sort of vampire spoof. And he had to dig his heels in quite a lot to get it to be as straight. Right. And and you take into account it's more or less what would be considered a hard R um, these days. Um, much like the first uh, Deadpool film. And again, like another sort of little feather in its cap. Like looking back, like not only is it the first proper modern Marvel comics 
modern comic book uh, film, successful one, with an obscure character. It's also one that was an R or an 18 rating in the UK and was successful. Like that's that's and like no studio, again with the exception of what managed to happen with Deadpool, and again that took a lot of pushing yeah, to get it happen. Yeah. You know, it's again it's quite a noteworthy event that this happened. Um, it's not going to happen for a while, so <laughs> well you never know. You never know. Um, the release of that more recent cut of Deadpool two, although it was meant to be for a charity and a bit of fun, um, says a lot about what Disney might do with the potential for R-rated or 18-rated superhero films. Um, so, yes, it was released eventually uh, in 1998, but um, New Line Cinema's last big notable films before that were uh, 1998's Lost in Space on April the 3rd, this won't be going in the timeline. <laughs> N- not until we talk about Lost in Space, which it's not a good film, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it exists. You could say that it's got its qualities. Yeah. I guess you would say <laughs> <laughs> you haven't even seen it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, before that, Dark City. I've uh, seen that actually. Yeah, good film. Um, it was released on February twenty seventh by New Line, and also written by David Escoya. I think. Oh. I think. Um, so yes, the first Blade film was released in 13th November 1998 in the UK, but uh, actually released in America uh, in uh, the 21st of August, so a good few months before we got to see it over here. It was uh, directed by Stephen Norrington. Um, his previous directing features was a, a low-budget horror sci-fi thriller called Death Machine, and while it is just a bad B-movie generally, it was impressive enough to get him the gig for Blade. Um, he was born in 1964 in London, England. Wow. Um, and he is most notable after that for directing The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, that's quite, that's starring Sean Connery, which is arguably a much better film than people give it credit for being. It does some really good and interesting stuff. Um also, it's understandable why it didn't do well. It's again an obscure sort of comic thing. So I, like, I like the characters in that, but just something about the film was they didn't fully click. But it's yeah, the worst it, it one I've seen. So. It doesn't feel quite there, but no. yeah. Uh, he, he's actually a Belgian filmmaker, even though he was born in London. And he'd done special effects work in horror and action. And he'd been a sculptor and makeup artist who'd worked with the likes of Dick Smith, Rick Baker, and Stan Winston uh, on a number of films during the 80s and 90s. Um, he also crops up in this film as a character, sort of. But we'll get to that at some point. It's an interesting little fact that will come up later. Uh, as mentioned, it was written by David S. Goyer. He was born in December 22nd, 1965. Uh, he, he's written a bit of everything over the years, um, including the, the Blade trilogy, as mentioned. He worked on the Dark Knight trilogy, Dark City, Man of Steel, Batman vs. Superman, Dawn of Justice, and directed uh, four films, including Blade Trinity, which we'll get to at some point. He's also a co-writer on 
Call of Duty Black Ops and Call of Duty Black Ops 2. Oh. And he won a Saturn Award for Best Writing in Batman Begins. He's, got, he's been uh, He's been around. He, and he's still around. He's, done, some, he's still doing a lot of work. Some mediocre stuff as well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. When you write, you write everything. Yeah. Uh, obviously, getting to the cast, most famously and notably, Wesley Snipes' Blade. Um, for those who don't know, Blade is what one would call a... I've got to pronounce this properly. Dampier? Or, you know, <laughs> probably Dampier. Dampier. Um, it's hard to, to read, let alone pronounce. But, you know, the vampires refer to him as Daywalker in the film. And uh, he's half-human, half-vampire. Uh, going back to his creation, he's actually another noble uh, thing. He's not an American character. Is he Obviously, not? being created by a British writer, he's actually was born in London. Oh, he's English. His blade, which kind of leans more into the notion of vampire hunters, and you know, yeah, it would make more sense in London being like, yeah. Um, the film also stars uh, Stephen Dorff as Deacon Frost, the film's main Great character. Villain. <laughs> We'll get to him. Um, he's uh, obviously another American actor, known for portraying Roland West most recently in True Detective Season 3. Um, and he's been in a range of different films. He also voiced Jack Carver in Far Cry Instincts. Oh. Um, interesting note on the Deacon Frost character. He was actually uh, one of the few characters that's actually from the comics in this film. Um, but he's supposed to be uh, about 60 to 80-year-old looking, sort of white-haired gentleman, oh. um, who may be from sort of... It's hard to know, obviously, because you can't hear accents and things in comics. But he's maybe Germanic, uh, 1860s sort of clothing. Um, there was also a doppelganger character that used the same name, but he was supposed to be... Uh, suggested to be a southern preacher-esque sort of character so neither of these characters are the portrayal that Stephen Dorff definitely leans into he, he's more of a sort of 90s sort of party guy waster sort of um, rich boy sort of portrayal yeah. you know? um, and another fantastic and notable so the other notable character is uh, Chris Christopherson as Abraham Whistler. Oh, yeah, another great old man. Yeah, who doesn't like a grizzly old sort of beaten up guy in them films? Like walking like with his janky leg and all <laughs> his <laughs> vampire hunter to the extreme. Um, Christo- Christopherson was born June twenty second, 1936 and is known for being an actor, but also a singer-songwriter, for those who don't know. Um, mostly in sort of country music. Um, he he's worked with people like Willie Nelson, Johnny Cash, people like that. So and he's just you know an amazing actor, amazing voice actor, yeah. especially like you've heard his work in probably uh, Fallout New Vegas, where he plays one of the NCR characters, one of the generals, I think. So he's just just a fantastic presence on screen. Uh, the Abraham Whistler character, uh, it's obviously a, a vampire hunter and mentor, but also he wasn't created in the comics. He was actually created for the, the film, 
but didn't originally appear in the film. His first appearance was in uh, the Spider-Man, uh, the animated series, where, he's met, where he was voiced by Malcolm McDowell, of all people. Yeah. Mm. Um, and later by some other actors as well. Uh, he does appear in some comic books, but they are comic books that are linked to the Blade universe, not the Marvel 616 universe, which is the main Marvel oh, universe. Yeah. The other notable actors is... Um, I've got to get the pronunciation right on this because I don't want to be offensive. Uh, there we go. Uh, other notable actors are Boucher Wright as Dr. Karen Jensen, who's an uh, American actress and dancer. She attended uh, and trained as a dancer at the Alvin Alley Dance Centre um, and the Martha Graham School of Dance. She's mainly known for her role as Dr. Karen Jensen in this film. But she's done a few other bits of work, mostly um, stuff in Dead Presidents oh. and other notable films like that. Um, uh, another standout for me, and we'll hopefully note, note this as we go through the main timeline of the film, uh, German actor and icon Udo Kier appears once again as a vampire, obviously. He, he has famously appeared in over 200 films to this date. And both leading and supporting roles throughout Europe and North America. And he's acclaimed, uh, collaborated with acclaimed filmmakers like Lars von Trier, Gus von Saint, uh, Dario Ingerto, um Other characters just worth noting is uh, there's Eric Redwoods playing Pearl. We'll get to Pearl oh, later. I didn't know about Pearl. I was like, oh, I remember this now slightly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in a little while. Um, uh, Sana Lathan who I'm, I'm butchering so many names, but reading off off the screen like this, who is notable to me, especially as being the lead in the Alien vs. Predator film. Um, but she plays a, an important key character in this film. Um, she's most recently been seen in 2019 American drama Native Son. Uh, there's Donald Logue, who's playing Quinn. And he, if he's like, you probably recognised him straight away, but if you're a fan of like comic books and comic book sort of media, uh, you probably recognise him as one of the characters from um, Fox's Gotham TV series. I did, yeah. I was like, I know him from somewhere, but I can't quite picture it. Yeah, <laughs> picture, him, picture him in a little hat yeah. and being a bit gruff and grumpy. And I think that's it for the notable characters or actors. The, the film, for the sake of the timeline, and because we've mentioned the 616 universe. Uh, for those who don't know, 616 is the the designation Marvel gave its baseline Marvel comic universe. And any time there's any media or other comics or side universes in comics or in the Marvel comics, say a character goes through a portal to another universe, that other universe gets a designation. So there's been so many crossovers and so many big events that they started numbering them essentially the blade universe is earth 26320 oh. for those interested and it encompasses the three films the tv series that limbert didn't know about and um any related comic books we'll like i say we'll be mainly covering the movies here although we may touch on the tv series after the third episode 
the film seems to be set in LA, or at least it's been filmed partially in LA. But it's also some places state that it's in New York. And they feel I felt like it. I mean, all the Marvel Marvel stuff tends to be in New York. It did feel like kind of New York, but not New York at the same time. Like there are some shots where there were there were precious few tall buildings, and it's hard to know. Maybe they just went for the atmosphere of them shots, but didn't think about where it would look like it was. Or maybe it's meant to be like New York subway. So it's hard to know 100%. Maybe it's set in multiple places because there is a lot of driving from place to place. I'm not sure exactly how close LA and New York are, though. They're quite far apart. So I doubt it's (laughs) they're next to each other. This is what we're here for. The timeline itself. So we're going to go through the, the bulk of the scenes in the film. We'll stop, have a little chat about it every so often, okay. right? And we can kind of get some feedback on what we think of it. Um, so our timeline starts exact date unknown, which makes this show almost a write-off to begin with because it is incredibly hard to find any exact details as to when this film is supposed to take place in any timeline. Um, we may have to rely on getting to Blade 2 and seeing if there's any information there that can sort of set in stone exactly when this is supposed to take place. But we open with our opener, set in 1967, no date aside from that given. And we open on a hospital, and a young woman's being rushed through very brightly lit walls. I don't know if you noticed, yeah. but it's, it's practically glowing in that <laughs> emergency room. And she's bleeding from the neck, and she's struggling on on a gurney. And she's pregnant. Apparently, she's been bitten, according to doctors tending to her. And they say they say a wild animal. Yeah, they say some kind. Of, yeah, I think it's wild animals. Is it wild animals? The exact thing they say, but something along those lines. Um, as they as they're moving her, her wallet dramatically drops from her hand or from her side, and we hear a heart monitor as it swiftly speeds up until it reaches a consistent hum. Uh, after an unseen C-section, we hear, they hear them mention we have to C-section, yeah. uh, we see a baby being taken away from her. I'm, I'm not sure exactly how they do that in an emergency situation. The one C-section I was witness to in real life, they tended to try and numb the mother in that area but she clearly is seen reaching for the camera. Yeah. So I suspect it was so emergency urgent that they just opened her up as quickly as they could. But the heart monitor becomes a steady beep before she reaches for the baby, which makes it interesting. <laughs> she's she's like in her last throes, but she's in no pain whatsoever. But she's in. It's it's <laughs> hard to see exactly what's going on. But she's give she's, my baby. She's seemingly un- unfazed by the effect of the bite, bite, loss of blood, and still open C-section in her abdomen. Um, and apparently doctors don't use local anaesthetic or painkillers in 1967. Uh, but we, we don't see her death. We don't see her at all. We hear the heart monitor go, and we're told later that she died. But we don't see it on screen. We just fade out. Next, we cut to our title. And the film's begun. So what, what what did you think of this sort of scene setting? It's yeah. alright. It was kinda of like, oh, it's getting you like introduced to like the character and how sort of how Blade was actually 
half vampire, half human. Because I well, it's not clear that it's not hundred percent quite clear. happening. I mean, you know what you're in for when yeah. you're going into a film about vampires with a guy called Blade. But if we didn't, if we didn't know what the film, we'd be like, oh, his yeah. mum's just tired and she's she's giving birth to like. Even then, you don't know about vampires. No. If you're blind going in, you just know she's been bitten by something and they've had a C-section and you hear the heart monitor and no. that's it. Um, it. Again, it's interesting sort of seeing what, how did you feel about the whole actual procedure itself and all that. It's not too graphic or no. anything. You know, it's, it's quite simple, like, but I guess it leaves to, like, you're mindful in the, the blanks. Which it's good in a way, like... Um, it's interesting that, that Spider-Man came after this and that's an entire film about an origin story and essentially you get Blade's origin within five, five yeah. seconds here I quite like that though because then he sort of skips to like he makes an adult like you don't see any of that he's training anything no <laughs> well that's yeah that's an interesting point so um, for those interested C-section procedures uh, the C-section <laughs> Dates back as far as ancient Roman times. <laughs> yes. Uh, Pliny the Elder suggested that Julius Caesar was named after an ancestor who was born by C-section. <laughs> <laughs> I can never think about him the same. Him the same now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't have. Well, oh. Um, there's ancient Jewish literature as well. Um, that suggests that surgical delivery of a baby was possible without killing the mother, but surgically, uh, surgery was rarely performed. Um, survival rates would have been low due to infection and blood loss back then. Uh, the first recorded case of a mother surviving the surgery was in 1580 in uh, Switzerland, where uh, Jacob Nuffer, Nuffer, uh sorry Jacob if you're listening, who was a pig uh, gelder or pig farmer, I think, is said to have performed the operation on his own wife when her labour was not progressing. Is that you're not coming trust me, lo- trust, son? <laughs> trust me, love. I can do it. Uh, traditionally done to save baby, not mother. So that's that's something you should bear in mind when they were they were taking blade out. Doctors consider it a way of saving the baby because they can't save the mother usually. Um, the baby's priority. They did kind of allude to that actually. Like, if you listen to like like. They perform a C-section immediately mm. as a heart as, a, as she's like dying, mm. and it's interesting doing the research, doing the research into C-sections and stuff, and some of the other medical stuff that pops up. You know, it providing that sort of level of understanding as as the thought process for things like that when it comes to narrative. Um, obviously, no writer is, is as knowledgeable as a doctor. So you see some of the flaws when you do research into things like this as well. But um, So we get to our credits, which is over the first major scene. And we get a cool time lapse ty- titles that you know, see the, the time drifting as quickly as possible, the sky changing from day to night, and a car medi- moving at high speed through the city. Uh, the date is simply noted in subtitles as now. now, which, when it comes to the timeline, makes this incredibly difficult, as I said before. So, for this point on, until another film or piece of this canon tells us otherwise, we are deciding officially that Blade takes place the day after the launch of the film. 
Yeah, so it feels like it was released then, and then the events start. Which I guess should make sense because it did say now, so it could mean yeah. Like that is literally this point yeah. in time is when it starts, and so that's the earliest point it could possibly make sense. Um, we're we're going to just say it takes some time in 1998. There are a couple driving down the road and exchanging flirty and awful lines. The woman, I think she's behind the wheel. I'm I'm trying to picture which side is which. I think she's on the left. He's on the right. So I think she's driving. Yeah, I, I believe she's trying because yeah, yeah. I, he says he asked where you're taking me. Oh yeah. no, no, not quite, not, not quite, quite, not one while they're in the car. It's just something about a surprise. Um, we're going to get onto some of the things they say. I think. Uh, uh, where are we? So, so the woman behind the wheel, she she exchanges a couple of lines with him, then grabs him in the genitals, causing him to squeal in a probable pain, and maybe a bit of excitement from the most ninety-eight dressed man ever. Like late nineties, little little puffy hat on and everything, and she's like, "Oh, what you got down there, little man?" And he says, "What did he say? Is that about rocket launch or something?" <laughs> <laughs> You're close. You, you almost remembered it. Oh, this is my heat seeker. That's a heat seeker. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, "That that's what what?" <laughs> um, so we we quickly move to what looks to be a meat packing plant. Cadavers hang from the ceiling as our couple pass through. A suspicious body, uh, or suspicious-looking body, because obviously they're all bodies, uh, wrapped in semi-clear plastic, passes by, and the guy spots it, and he spots it just for a second, and it's about the same amount of time we have to maybe yeah. clock what it is. Obviously, going through and looking at it, it's humanoid sort of shaped thing, but you don't get a clear idea of it. So there's this little hint at the very beginning that you know, this place. Aside from the fact that she's taking him there on a date, <laughs> let's go look at some cows, um, that something is is not quite right there. Uh, turning a corner, the mystery woman shouts in what seems to be Russian or Eastern European uh, in origin language uh, to another figure before forcing herself onto her male friend with a firm kiss as techno music starts to play, gently play in the background. Um... We move into one of the most 90s scenes ever recorded as generic sounding techno plays and a vast number of people dressed in mostly white. Yeah, a lot of white. A lot of white. Dance together. The music is actually a remix of the song Confusion by New Order. Oh. <laughs> uh, immediately ditched by his lady friend, our 90s heat seeker moves around the meat rave, <laughs> which is one of the best phrases I've ever written. Uh, attempting to have a good time, constantly being rejected by, possibly rightly so, by everybody there. I mean, if they, if they weren't vampires, he he seems to be a bit of a douche. He did say, I was like, get out of my coffee. Yeah, yeah. Um, including his former companion. It's here we get the first sight of our main protagonist, bumping into the guy and glaring moodily at him and the camera. That's Deacon Frost. He drifts by, the camera lingering on him. Suddenly, our POV character feels something wet and red fall onto his palm. We cut needlessly to another character getting a blowjob. Okay. Did you notice that? There's like, yeah. like a shot of blood landing on his palm, and then there's this random cut to the Quinn character getting a blowjob from one person and, and a kiss from another yeah. person. Oh, snog, you know. And it's like, what? <laughs> like, if they'd had that somewhere else that like he was passing them, that was happening, that'd be like, it makes sense. But it just, just cuts to it and then cuts back. 
Uh, before we cut back to a lame uh, to to uh, lame start the fun uh, and somewhat goofy visual, uh, so like to give you an image, like suddenly you see the cut shot of the DJ and all the lights go up, and he's got a little banner behind him. So I'm just wondering, in your opinion, then, but did the DJ make the bloodbath sign hanging behind him himself out of some old bed sheet? Or do they keep it around for whenever they do this? They keep it around because they play it quite often. <laughs> so Once a week. It's like the most nerdy thing a vampire could do. That's just write bloodbath on a, <laughs> on, a, on a big white sheet and hang it behind the DJ whenever we do this. Full it. of vampires as well. Suddenly, fire sprinklers turn on in what looks to be blood. Sprays from above over everyone. Oh shit, vampires. <laughs> like, shit, there's vampires everywhere suddenly. Our 90s stud immediately freaks out before being knocked to the ground and kicked and beaten by vampire revellers in the tendons. Coming to a stop at a pair of black boots. <laughs> what I find to be, <laughs> to be a fascinating choice of line, one of the vampires utter, Jesus, that's him, which is the most ironic line for a vampire to utter. When you think about it, it's quite a great introduction the way he walks it. The way he walks it, and like you see all the vampires just like he's not even walking. Just, he's, just he's, there he appears. And you see all these vampires just like the freak. But you wouldn't think they'd, they'd re- reference Jesus Christ <laughs> as <laughs> vampires uh, before we get our first hero shot of the film. Probably the most notable hero shot, considering, except for maybe the very last one of him of the series and possibly of the modern superhero era. First proper superhero shot, including uh, introducing us, excuse me, introducing us to Wesley Snipes as Blade. Question one, just how did he get into the brave unseen? Also, spotless. <laughs> Even now, as the whole room is still, has blood spraying everywhere, and all the floors covered in blood. You think, it, you know, that's, that's something I didn't understand, because he's like literally clean as anything. <laughs> Like, did he just come in and just, just have, like... You'd think he'd have ash over him as well. You'd think it'd be some kind of ash when he's, like, killing, like... Because they do, like, sort of... Turn into dust, don't they, the vampires? He's killing them. He's, not, he's like, just spotless, like... It's impressive. <laughs> with, a, with a wry smile, our hero steps forward before a random, uh, random from the crowd shouts, Come on, Daywalker! <laughs> As quickly as he steps forward to take Blade on, the vampire is taken down with a single surprise shotgun blast to the middle. Now, he's shot in the middle. He's definitely shot in the middle because that's exactly where he dissolves from. It causes our first vampire dissolve, by the way, which is outdated CGI, to yeah, be fair. It, it, was no, it was noticeable, but... But it's not the worst CGI we see in the film. No. We do see a lot of this effect, though, so that's why it becomes noble. You kind of get used to it. A second vampire grabs some meat hooks from the wall before walking very stupidly at Blade, waving the hooks around and screaming, also getting shot very quickly. <laughs> Two more gun down before our original lady vampire threatens Blade before also being put down very quickly. It's like, <laughs> what is that? I'm going to rip your face yeah. off or something? And then it's just like punch, shoot in the face. Dropping his shotgun, uh, Blade gets into a prolonged action kung, kung fu fight scene, taking out several vampires with a mix of steaks, 
wooden, not beef, considering where we are. Swords and throwing weapons. Uh, no, dusted, it's a term we'll use from now on for those, for ease of understanding. <laughs> Vampires, clothes turn into dust, but glasses don't. Notable, oh, yeah. notable in the scene that like, there's a vampire whose clothes will dissolve away with his body, but a pair of glasses just fall to the ground. I mean, we, we realise later on in the film that sunglasses are very important to Blade, so maybe they've got some sort of holy protection. I don't know. Yeah, he's got en enchantment on them. <laughs> <laughs> Two more are gunned down. Oh, no, no sorry. Uh, some fun kills here, actually. Uh, stake through the head to the ceiling. Uh, Remember that one's like stake yeah. into the head. I think he's probably stuck there for a couple of seconds. Um, so, which also helps us to note that you don't have to stake through the heart to kill. No. A good one to note. Um, our, f uh, our fun, if a little goofy action fight ends with Blade staking the vampire Quinn, who was getting a blowjob earlier, to the wall with a shot of his shotgun to the shoulder. Right. <laughs> So that the the shotgun is already a bit inconsistent because he laid shot somebody in the stomach and they dissolved. Oh. He shot stabbed somebody in the head and they died with a stake. He shot somebody else with a shotgun in the head and they died. But when he shoots Quinn in the shoulder, it doesn't kill him. So it's not the bullets killing people, the the vampires. It's it's some other aspect, but it's inconsistent. It's hard to figure out exactly how it works. Uh, Quinn then starts talking in uh, an untranslated language here. The subtitles on the DVD just say Slavic. Oh. He speaks Slavic, which makes it Germanic. Yeah. Or, you know. uh, Blade sets Quinn on fire before vanishing as police arrive. You see him just disappear, but you actually get a shot of him leaving through a yeah. vent or something like that. Uh, and they, they rescue the one reveler who wasn't a vampire. Uh, Blade crawls out of the sewer drainage gate and walks moodily into the night as wind, not for the first time, blows papers and trash around his feet on the floor. <laughs> so what did you think of this opening scene? As an opening scene goes, like I, I really like the notion of, especially as it was the first time somebody had done something like this, like, of course the vampires go to a rave Oh, yeah. And of course, there's blood coming from the Let's ceiling. See. It's like the image, and them getting all covered in blood. And they're all red, and like as an image, and a scene, it kind of works in your head. But I mean, what do you think of this? I think it's kind because of, it kind of sets the mood that vampires are not just like brooding around in the dark, sort of dark alleyways, just waiting for like yeah, having a good time as well. Like almost like it's almost like they're in a it's nineties back then, like just being out partying, raving. Um, it does hint at that what was the big scare of the time which was raves and yeah. things as well like oh, these oh, terrible kids they're going out raving and stuff but you get that classic fight scene that first fight scene and he's it's for those who don't know uh, Wesley Snipes obviously he's a trained martial artist anyway but he did all the choreography for the film himself as well so that that fight scene it's like all his work yeah. and it's it's not perfect. It's not like a, a properly trained choreographer, but it's pretty good for what it is. And there's some imaginative stuff going on in there, like some fun stuff going in there. But it it kind of kicks off that. There's two things to kick off here: the whole 
techno rave sort of music while somebody's fighting sort of scene in films. And also, it's very important to take into account at this point, this is 1998. The Matrix came out a year later. You know, and this is a guy who's like this techno music on, he's got shades on, he's doing kung fu moves. He's, he's fighting powerful creatures, or supposed to be powerful creatures, because they all dissolve like <laughs> tissue paper in this Apart scene. Apart from Quinn, who's like... Quinn, who somehow, like... <laughs> somehow survives everything. And he's like in that sort of Matrix-esque sort of clothing, a black jacket and stuff. So it's like, it's cementing that, that you know, 90s cool, 90s, early 40s cool, before the Matrix it's kind of set it in place. And that's in, another interesting milestone. But aside from that, you know, like, as the fight scene goes, it's it's pretty, it's all right, it's enjoyable, it's fun to watch, you know. It hasn't aged too badly. Yeah, no. Aside from the special effects, you know. Apart from any consistencies, but... Yeah, <laughs> we'll get to some more of those, I'm sure. We hop over to another well-lit, another running theme, like hospitals glow in all of these. Maybe it's just because they're, ho- they're like healing places. Hello. Maybe, maybe, maybe. But it's a well-lit medical facility. We're not 100% sure it's a proper hospital, but I think later on she mentions it's a hospital. And Quinn's remains, remains in, in you know, air quotations, are rolled into a morgue. Uh, the body bag being opened to reveal quite a nice piece of, you know, fake burned yeah. body. It's, it's good quality of special right. effects. Uh, we lay, uh, then move over to a young woman in an office. The camera deliberately pans very slowly down to give us a clear look at her name badge. Karen Jensen, hematologist. I just think that was a bit weird, though. Like, yes, but it's like it's again, it's another Chekhov's gun sort of thing. But uh, you know, she's a doctor of blood. Yeah. And there's a vampire movie. It's like it, it's more questionable how this fluke pair of things are <laughs> happening together. We are uh, underscored this as we are shown her looking at footage of blood cells on on a sort of video monitor for a, teles- uh, a microscope telescope. What? You get a clear look at her notes. I, I whenever possible, no. I look at all the notes and anything in any film to give us a sense of date. There are no newspapers I can see in this film to help us get a, a sense of time or place. Uh, but her notes are, are worthwhile because they're absolutely gibberish. <laughs> you can't understand a single thing she's written down, um, which is fine because she's a doctor. Doctor's handwriting. Yeah. She's looking at what is apparently the blood of our vampire friend, Quinn, and uh, is apparently baffling her because it's impossible. She says that the red blood cells are biconvex. Uh, blood con- blood cells are normally biconcave, allowing them to perform properly uh, by transporting things like oxygen around the body. That's how they carry things. Uh, mutation in the shape of blood cells would prevent the cells from easily moving through the blood vessels and would affect general health of people. Uh, most famously, sickle cell disease is a rare, rare real-world blood cell deformity that makes life incredibly painful for those who suffer from it. Uh, as an example of how rare it is, uh, ST, uh, SCD occurs among one out of every 365 black or African-American births, one out of every 16,300 Hispanic African uh, Hispanic American births, 
and about one out of every 13 black or African-American babies are born with sickle cell trait. So, um, for example, my wife, because she's, you know, mixed race, she had to be tested for it. You possibly may have been tested for it or been asked it, but it was probably a young age. Yeah. Too young for me to remember. (laughs) Uh, Nobody wants to remember blood tests. It's also noted that in this scene, uh, the other doctor in the room says the polys are uh, binucleated. Uh, Binucleated cells are cells that contain two nuclei. Instead of one. This type of cell is most commonly found in cancer cells. And may arise from a variety of causes. Uh, In short, this vampire's blood is very wrong. Not that they know it's a vampire. Uh, As the camera gets a little floaty for some reason, I noticed while these two characters are talking, the camera just keeps drifting up and down, back and forth, all over the place. Like the camera operator couldn't hold it steady. (laughs) And there's no reason because it's a sit-down scene. You could use a tripod. Um... Dr. Cowan doubts the legitimacy of the blood she's looking at and accuses the morgue doctor of making up uh, this up as an attempt to get close to her. Apparently, they're exes. It is come across like that. They had, they have, they've got some history. Got history, yeah. yeah. He asks her just to look at the body. So, as he begins an attempted autopsy, Curtis, we find out his name, our coroner, starts to talk about the couple's failed relationship. Uh, suddenly, Quinn sits up, grabs him and sinks his teeth into his neck in quite, like, quite a uh, not surprising or shocking sort of bit but the, the sort of way he moves is quite like, desperate yeah. and sudden uh, no sooner than Curtis hits the floor before Quinn chases the unfortunate blood doctor into the hallway and starts feeding on her neck too um, as all hope is lost Blade strolls into the scene this is this is where I have <laughs> questions for Blade. Punching Quinn in the face. Uh, apparently he says he's come to finish Quinn off. Which is strange because why not just kill him before? Unless he wanted two innocent people to get attacked at the hospital. Yeah. Like he killed all those other vampires. No problem. He, left Quinn. He, sh- he shot him, set him on fire but despite knowing that he would survive it, he's decided to come back and finish him off now. Yeah. Why? Why even go to the hospital? Either go, I've killed him there, or don't go to the hospital. There's, there's an inconsistency in Blade's actions. Like it's just like I think it's a bit of a odd bit of writing. That's all. Maybe if you made out that somehow Blade was interrupted while setting him on fire. Well, it kind of was, was it? I guess to an extent, but not so got, much. No. He was so slow and plodding. He just shot him in the face. I could just chop his head off. Yeah, anything play. which we'll get to. <laughs> <laughs> um. Anyway, as Blade cuts Quinn's hand off, two plucky cops come around the corner. Like, cuts his hand off, two cops come around the corner, and they yell up, they'll blaze, freeze. And before doing anything else, they immediately start shooting anyway. Which tracks with the state of America these days. Social commentary. <laughs> Uh, uh, it takes more uh, more than a brisk telling off from Blade to convince our boy and girl cop in blue to run away immediately. So they just come around the corner, say freeze, shoot all their bullets. Then he says, like something like, "Oh, come mother- on. you motherfucker!" Oh, yeah. yeah, something like that. <laughs> and they just run away immediately, like cowards. Uh, or, and clearly, all he's doing is wearing some bulletproof armor. They could have just shot him again in some other part of his body, but no. This also gives Quinn a, a chance to flee out the window, which is why it happens. As Blade plans to leave, he passes Dr. Cowan, who's on the floor 
and 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 sort of bleeding out. To him, she bears enough of passing resemblance to his lost mother, who he remembers from one fleeting encounter during his birth. See that this is the part where I was like, this is a bit stupid. Because how do you remember his mum reaching up for him? When it, I'm guessing in that kind of scenario, they took, they took him the baby out that seemed quite far. So, <laughs> so he's, he would have spent less than a second yeah. able to see her. But somehow, maybe it's his vampire side. He's got some sort of extended memory or something. Who knows? We can justify it as best we can. Actually, but yeah. it recurs more than once. The, the notion that he's he remembers this image of his mother, and that compels him to save this woman. So, he does pick her up and attempt to take her with him. Before he can leave, a gaggle of police arrive, all opening fire on him and his apparent hostage to them. So they're just risking shooting her as well. Um, In an attempt to get out, uh, he flings her, (laughs) without looking first, out of the first open window he sees, across... They have to be about seven stories high. From the window across the street onto another building um, he just kind of knows I suppose he's got some kind of sense to like I think he must have like literally broke so many bones <laughs> <laughs> well, well we get confirmation that she's been injured but it's not as bad as you think no. uh, this scene more or less confirms that the baby we see at the start of the film is a young blade. We we can confirm that by seeing the mother. That's one good thing that comes out of it. You know that yeah, baby is blade. Not that it's hard to know. But, no. <laughs> uh, under more cop gunfire, blade uh, ferries the doctor to cover, before popping her dislocated left shoulder back into place. She mentions my shoulder oh, yeah. dislocated. Like after everything that's happened, she's like, "Oh, by the way, my shoulder's dislocated." man who's abducting me and then they slip into a stairwell to make his final escape so yeah like it's an interesting scene it's quite, yeah what do you think about blade turning up for no reason it's I mean, like that was a bit weird well, like him just appearing at the hospital was like i was like why would he go there anyway like he'd probably be halfway across like why does he ambush me in the ambulance i think <laughs> this <laughs> But I guess it was just all set up just to give us that one scene so we like get the doctor so you can get the doctor to back to his hideout and like sets up that entire story timeline I guess but it was a bit of a odd scene I guess mm. check it. later that morning we transition through the city to a train yard it's the next morning oh, well I assume that the, the rave was taking about Placing about the AM, probably. Um, we arrive at Blade's current base of operations. Uh, welcome to the strings of Clear, uh, Credence Clearwater Revival's Bad Moon Rising, which, you know, Bad Moon Rising vampires are kind of a little on the nose. Here we meet Whistler, Blade's friend, teacher, father figure, fellow vampire hunter. The character of Whistler was created, as we mentioned, for the film. He admonishes Blade for not killing the Doctor instead of bringing her to him. And then Whistler injects her with garlic, or essence of garlic, to prevent her change into a vampire. And Blade lets him know, uh, and then he lets 
Blade know just how much he's messed up in bringing her there. Uh, as smoke seeps out of uh, the bite wound on the doctor's neck, Whistler starts up his workshop equipment, <laughs> and the engine on his workshop equipment somehow powers the music as the song starts up at the same speed and starts playing again. <laughs> like, there's a unique way of playing your CDs, but maybe it's on vinyl or something. I don't know. It's Whistler. He's made it. <laughs> Um, what do you think of Whistler? The first introduction to him. You only get him briefly, but I know like, he's quite cool. He almost looks like you can tell by he's like the mental character, is he? Yeah. Almost like he's he's more old school. Yeah. So we cut to a dark room after this. Uh, several dark room, not dark room, not photography dark room. Uh, several people are sitting around a table, and one is seen sifting through photos. We got our first official Udo Kier sighting of the timeline. Everyone. A small F in respect uh, as he complains about a- Blade's actions uh, he's surrounded by several other important looking sort of yeah. figures around the table he calls for Frost to come in and we get our first real introduction to Deacon Frost our main antagonist it's like we saw him earlier but we don't really know who he is he's just a you know cool looking guy again air quotations cool uh, Frost here is played by the quite young Stephen Dorff and as I mentioned earlier the character is supposed to be as old as the other yeah. characters around the table it's an interesting choice but it's, I think it's more of a sign of the times um, he's told off by the others around the table for the previous night's events as quite a few vampires have been killed um, and what he's doing is putting vampires at risk apparently they don't like vampires collecting in one place in vast numbers. To me, it almost feels like old versus new in this scene. Like this, they're going for that old versus new. Like mm, yeah, you squares don't know yeah. how it is to be a teen <laughs> these days. We aren't quite told what pure blood is. We we know that they're born as vampires, but like how vampires come to be born as vampires. You know, is it do they breed as do they just, like, like they explain it? Yeah, they, like all we know is they weren't bitten, and that's it. So we assume vampires are a species. And they can breathe like, like normal. I was hoping for a bit more. They didn't really explain. They didn't really delve into that. Maybe we'll they'll delve into it later oh. on, but uh, in another section, one of the other films. But it's never really super clear. It's just you can kind of derive the sort of ideas that they're yeah. going for from it. Um, uh, also, Deacon Frost is a bit of a knob. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's that douchey sort of guy. He argues that vampires should be in charge of humans and not hiding away, and he scoffs at the old squares in the room. Frost delivers one hell of a zinger at Gatana, though, <laughs> which is one of my favourite lines in the film. He's like, Gatano, you may wake up one day to find yourself extinct. Oh, yeah. Which is the most brilliantly stupid, almost Homer Simpson level of truism coming out of his mouth is like you could wake up tomorrow dead sort of thing <laughs> you know it's like that's not that's, that's not how waking up works uh, or extinction anyway meanwhile Blade is in Chinatown it's not super clear it's, it's Chinatown it's a, a shop that looks like a herbal Chinese herbal remedy store but it's being run by a young black guy so I don't know if he's just one of the people who work there 
But he's clearly the person who makes vampire serum for the Blade. Or anti, Blade doesn't he? Anti-vampire <laughs> serum, should I say. And the, the, it feels like Wesley Snipes has had one of his friends cast to be in the film. And that's not a bad thing. But it's just, you're not quite sure this guy's history, you know, why is it set in a ancient Chinese herbal remedy place? It kind of makes Maybe sense. Maybe he's being stereotypical, I guess. Yeah, like, yeah, on the nose like, things, yeah. He's like, oh, you would go to a Chinese shop, I guess, to get herbal stuff, I guess. Like, <laughs> yeah. That's what they're trying to say. Yeah. Um, and you see him toss some some a bag of Rolex watches down as payment for yeah. the serum. So they're my friends, but he still has to pay him in watches. Uh, he he's he mentions that he's he, he he looks at some essence of garlic, which he happens to just know is the right bottle yeah. he's picking up. Again on the nose, and he's there to pick up his anti uh, vampire serum, uh, which he says he's becoming resistant to, and it, it, it's it's stated that they kind of knew this was going to happen, but you know. We travel back across town after they leave, and we're in what looks to be an office above Blade and Mr. Whistle's base, and we find the doctor waking up from her night before. She wanders about the place. She starts looking around. There's a woman's ID, which we mentioned earlier, which is uh, his mother's ID, it turns out, in the end. There's his guns, obviously, and then there's his sword, draped with a tatty cloth. Um... And this does a good job, I think, because it shows the ID which ties the woman's name. We see the ID drop earlier from the wallet. And then it shows that Blades managed to find the ID somehow, probably from yeah. evidence lockers or something. Probably. And then, you know, from research, you kind of you ha- you get to put those pieces together yourself. And then you see her face, you see what she looks like. You can probably read the name on the ID because of the close shot if you want to pause it later. I mean, they didn't know that in in the cinema, but they knew people yeah. would probably pause videos and DVDs. So they they drip through these little bits of information, and then you get the sword scene where you see the sword and its trap, yeah, yeah. where the small blades come out of the handle. It all kind of sets off these little Chekhov's guns again. Like, there's the ID. This is the woman in it. This is the sword. You know, and it starts all these pieces rolling. Uh, she suddenly hears whistles and blade chatting at the same time about her, and a very useful profession. Like, like he, this is the first mention. Like we know from before that she's a blood doctor, but then Whistler kind of mentions it. Like she's she's a hematologist. She could be useful. The whistle man gives Blade an injection that sends him into convulsions. He physically has to be strapped down when he's given this injection. And he, he he has to hold on to Whistler's hand. He, he's he's it's quite violent looking. Yeah, it's not it's not super violent, but it's violent enough to be like he needs help. While the doctor's watching, she's spotted, and she she runs away before revealing their kinky secrets. But Whistler and Blade stop her. They introduce themselves. Cut to another interesting shot where you see Whistle Lord. Sloppy filling Blade's car oh, yeah, with no. petrol <laughs> while lighting a cigarette standing right next to it. One, where did they get a petrol pump? Two, what's it pumping? Because they're not in a service station or anything. It's and just, the way the gas is coming out of the car as well. And <laughs> it's just everywhere. It's, it's clearly meant to be that he's reckless, he doesn't care, he's got 
he's got no nothing to lose sort of feeling but he could blow them up as well anyway he's it's just he's a wild man we don't he, he's reckless and we get our first big bit of exposition dumping as whistles tells the doctor about the vampire's plague or the hominus nocturna which is a bad mistranslation or translation of night man into or from latin is that where it came from? Yeah, this is pretty obvious, really. Um, with several things we have note here. One is the fact they migrate. Oh yeah, they, they, yeah, they like have, like birds. <laughs> they talk about moving from city to city. Yeah, they track their migrations. Yeah. He says, and apparently hard to kill. Even though, in the very first scene, Blade killed fifty or so with little resistance. This one, they can't kill that one. <laughs> Just that one guy. <laughs> Maybe he's, I mean, you can tell to an extent he's deliberately torturing that one guy, but still. Um, what do you think of this little bit where they're giving information and stuff? You, you're kind of learning about yeah. vampires in this sort of version. It's quite a good scene. Like, especially when he's strapped down, he's like, I just don't, I just feel, I don't know, her running is a bit weird. Like, where's she going to run to? Like, she, she doesn't know how no. close she is. She doesn't know how quick they're going to be. Um, who they are even at that mm. point she's just woken up in the middle of nowhere I mean clearly she's been looked after yeah. to an extent but you know they could easily have done anything if they wanted to so but it should be anybody's instinct I suppose to run um, but you understand why yeah. they stop her obviously yeah. because she could be a vampire but it's quite good for setting up for like giving you loads of information about what what vampires are or at least the first yeah. set of information. Yeah. Doesn't lay it on too thick. No, does it? It's like some of it's pretty obvious. Yeah. It's stereotypical vampire stuff, you know, the Latin name for them and all that. But you know, you, they they let you know the first few bits. Um, and what do you think of him just standing there lighting the cigarette? That's the best scene. I was like, oh my! He's <laughs> like, put the petrol in, like, just case. And especially that the petrol's just like come out of the car anyway. Like, it's not even like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like this guy wants to blow himself up right we return and see more of Udo Kier who has arrived at the cloud apparently because he's walking past loads of servers and oh, yeah. he, he, he walks in on Deacon Frost who's like sitting next to, next to a Windows 98 computer listening to some really weird is it a Windows or is it an Apple? <laughs> it looks a like a Apple. Win- a lot of it looks like a PC. There's a lot of Apple computers in this film. If you know, if I laptops. didn't. I've not really super paid attention to them. Yeah, yeah laptops seem to all be all Apple, but <laughs> yeah. I think the PCs yeah. are all PC PCs. You know. Um, and he's sitting there just listening to bad music, and he's admonished for being where he shouldn't be. Um, before uh, he's told the translation he's working on. This is an important plot point. I'm going to get to later. But the the text he's he's translating of ancient vampire text. Underline that. So this is Udo Kier. His character is several thousand years old. We're told at some point. Oh, yeah. He's a true blood. The vampire text, yes, uh, a pure blood. Sure, he's not from the TV show pure, <laughs> True Blood, although we may refer to him as True True Blood at some point. It's impossible. He's told. Because everybody's forgotten how to translate the, the language, right? So, the oldest vampire we know so far, confirmed, can't translate these things. 
and he's using the other vampires using computer to translate them. Right, we'll, we'll pop that in our back pocket for later. And then, then Deacon gets up and is a bit lippy, so he gets a big slap around the face for his insolence. As much as made of the true blood vampires, we see little to nothing from them. They, they seem incredibly passive. Even at this point, it's just one slap, and then Deacon's kind of like, what are you going to do, mate? And he just kind of pets him on the face, and he just walks away. He, does, he could probably beat him up by himself, but he's just like... Uh, um, you get the idea that they were trying to be like, they're trying to hold back, they're reserved, they want to be respectable. But at the same time, this situation probably doesn't matter what they how they behave. They could probably kick his ass if they wanted to. Um, and it comes across more that they're timid and scared of him, which doesn't make sense because they don't even see him as a pure blood. Anyway, Blade drops off the doctor downtown with a further warning before driving his car down an alley and we get our second swirly wind rubbish driving around or floating around some aspect of Blade. The wind and rubbish on the street love Blade. Heading back up to her apartment, the Doctor has her first encounter with a vampiric world post-Blade as a couple get into her lift with matching neck tattoos. As she gets in, they stare intently for the entire ride at the back of her head. She turns to one and he's like, you know, looking at no, not even that. It's like, what's up, oh. sort of thing, you know. But was it more aggressive than that? Wasn't so it? A, li- yeah. a little bit, but it, it, yeah. it was meant to feel a yeah. bit more aggressive than it's meant to be. This leads to nothing as they slip into another apartment. As she's walking down the street. She turns around to to use the vampire mace, and they've gone. She she slips into her own apartment quite quickly, and she starts packing. When a police officer arrives, the doctor was kidnapped after all. Also shot at by cops after being tossed several stories out of an open window. The inept officer Kruger, or Krieger, uh, attempts to pull his gun on the doctor before being taken down by Blade. He proceeds to use the officer to, am- to demolish many of the nice things around the doctor's apartment. Uh, officer Krieger is a familiar, we're told. A human servant to vampires who wants to become a vampire eventually if, he's, if he behaves well. He also has a neck tattoo, but it's a different tattoo from the other two vampires we see. And we're told that this tattoo ties him to Deacon Frost. So the other vampires, who knows? The other, the other familiars, who knows who they belong to, you know? Um, I know that we see the other symbols around other locations yeah. later, so we could probably deduce who they belong to. Um, but it's not important or super clear. It kind of just paints a picture that there's lots of people around that know about vampires and they all just kind of know about different people but they don't interrupt that vampire person's business so they won't attack her because they probably recognise she's been bitten by a vampire because of her wounds but they they probably don't know specifically what's happened so they leave it you know outside Blade also reveals that Krieger has been transporting blood across the city so he's a sort of blood runner he continues to slap him around a bit, but the doctor protests enough that uh, Krieger gets a chance to make a break for it. As he runs past people on the street, they scream and move out of the way of the police officer, who's running for his life with no weapons, but they act completely oblivious to Blade. There's quite a lot of bystanders on the street, you know, a lot of people for him to run through. Think back to the last Marvel Comics film that had bystanders. 
like people in the city, just normal people. Like Avengers, there was barely anybody on the street. Like first Avengers film, there was quite a few human bystanders. It focused on a lot of their views of things that were going on. But slowly over time, in a lot of comic films lately, you're losing a lot of pedestrians and bystanders and civilians. Um, and maybe that's because it's getting too big, so they want to focus on the big grandeur of it all. But they're not. If, if you don't see the effect on normal people, kind of loses some of yeah. that perspective. But it tells off the doctor for getting not getting with the situation, and she follows him into his car uh, uh, as he tells her there's no cure for vampirism. Um, she's a blood doctor looking to cure herself though, so you know, she's going to try. Uh, what do you think of this, by the way? The world building and all that. It's like it's never like just giving you little bits of information. You learn about the familiars. Mm. How they're almost like kettle. Uh, almost like they're like groupies, aren't they? Because groupies. Because they want to be vampires. To like they're slave like, but it's almost like the vampires are leading them on because they're putting they're going to make yeah, them vampires. Yeah. Like, like one out of every yeah. hundred is going to become but a vampire. They still bidding for them, is it in the daytime and all like getting blood and all. It, it must suck to be them. <laughs> and and we find out as well that the vampire can you know, only the owner can feed on them. So no, yeah, no yeah. other vampire will feed on them yeah, if yeah. they've got a mark. Like, well, it's more like you know, this person works for me. You've just gone and killed them. What have you done? Yeah, it's like my, yeah. it's, it's my property. It's protection to an extent, really. You have to answer to me if you like. Right later that night, um, we rejoin Blade, still in his car, and the Doctor, and they're on a stakeout. Pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> they follow the returning Officer Krieger as he drives speed through the city. This is one of the weirdest piece of editing because it's like they're they're driving behind him. And he's talking on the radio, and they've sped up the footage. I think yeah, because the it background looks really weird. Because you know, they're talking normally, but the background is like really. It's all hyperkinetic yeah. and weird, and it's it doesn't seem to have been done for any reason other than it's supposed to feel like they're driving really quickly. But maybe they couldn't. Driving. get away with driving yeah. really quickly anywhere but they didn't want to do sort of any special background coverage so they just did whatever they did this effect to make it look nice or or interesting you know it just seems out of place it does seem it does seem a bit like what is going on here with the background is like well, but it's over quite fast so yeah it, it doesn't I mean yeah. it's, it doesn't bring it down as a overall, for, no. overall film but you know it's just a bit odd uh, he arrives at a nightclub, what looks to be a nightclub. Um, whatever it is, it's been filled with the most Asian actors. Anybody can get in one place at one time. Loads of really old Asian guys yeah. in there. Uh, the act on stage is the delightfully stereotypical J-Rap group. J-Rap, possibly. Oh, yeah, yeah. They're sort of just kind of talking over music uh, in rhythm, but they're not really rapping as far as I can tell. Uh, there's no subtitles for them. We don't need it. And, and they're an act of... Uh, a group of young women dressed in schoolgirl outfits. Not Japanese schoolgirl outfits, just schoolgirl outfits in general. I think that's more just stereot- stereotyping the uh, clientele, isn't it? Yeah, to an extent. <laughs> but it's like, it, it's just like, it's more like, oh, I don't know, it feels uncomfortable yeah. to an extent. But And they're just slightly short, too short skirts, slightly uncomfortable to watch sort of thing. Um... The bouncer's subtitles. Blade walks up to the bouncer. He mentions that there, there's several vampires outside, including a hooker on the corner. And he walks up to one of the bouncers. And the bouncer's subtitles 
just say, I kid you not, speaks Asian language. Not not translation from the language it's supposed to be. It's clearly supposed to be Japanese. Because there's certain words in there you can tell. But the the translators who worked on the subtitles for the DVD just couldn't be bothered to try figuring it out. So, yeah, this says some sort of Asian. Uh, yeah, that'll do. Before too long, Blade finds Krieger as he attempts to leave. He's, he tosses the uh, bouncer through a window. The bouncer's a vampire, important note. And he beats up some of the staff members uh, before continuing to rough up Krieger from earlier. He like, takes him into the kitchen beats yeah. him up a bit. Krieger reveals a secret door behind to Blade behind the freezer. Uh, and Blade and the Doctor head down to some unknown location filled with servers. Wait, we assume it's the same server location as before. I think it is. But I, it's not super obvious that it is because oh, it, uh, we don't see it at the same sort of... It doesn't lead to the same sort of place. Maybe no. there's multiple... Maybe, I don't know. Um, Blade assumes it's their archives. So, okay. It's the main vampire archives. Uh, if this is the main vampire archives, why is it so poorly guarded? Maybe they did. They, I guess that you got vampires at the door. So unless the vampire hunters are going in there, like he takes out one, and then he beats up a bar, barman and a couple of other guys. But I guess vampires are not really. They, they assume that humans will never get in there, like so. Maybe, maybe. Um, two. If it is open season, as Blade says to the police officer who he lets go uh, quote on all suckheads which I assume is vampires why didn't Blade outright kill the doorman the vampires outside or the barman he just kicks one in the face kind of throws one through a window and then walks in all the vampires are are unharmed pretty much they get a kick in good mood it's like I guess it is I I can't work out the people know what vampires were they I think maybe some of them were. Maybe they're just part of the whole community. Because they kind of looked at him walking past, like they don't care. No, as well though. Like they're like maybe the accuser of vampires or something. Maybe. But they're just all old buggers yeah. who are looking at dirty like yeah. girls, like dirty old men. Uh, it's kind of just weird sort of stereotype. It's more weird than the fridge. The way it opened up and then you can see the fridge is lighted up on the food side. I'm like. <laughs> Well, it's meant to, it's still a functional fridge, I think, to an extent. They, like like that. Remember that this is a weird deep cut, but you WWE Steve Austin versus Booker T, Booker T yeah, in, and Steve. You, they have like because over here we don't have this, but Steve goes in the back and comes out uh, through a fridge, doesn't he? Or one of them yeah. does. I've never seen that fight properly. I've seen bits of it. So, you know, it's entirely reasonable that, that it would be working to an extent. Maybe, yeah. It's a functional sort of chill room. Anyway. <laughs> and if anybody knows how American uh, industrial fridges work, please let us know. <laughs> uh, we return back to... Let's go back to Blade. Um, we arrive at a rooftop party in New York. Uh, rubber ducks bob around the pool and everyone is having a sucky time. Oh yeah, a lot of sucky time. Yeah, thank you. Because you know vampires. Uh, anyway, we find Deacon in his bedroom, topless, with the top button of his jeans open for some reason. Like he's, it, it's clearly like a photo shoot yeah. shot, like him sitting in front of the computer. Maybe he just went to the toilet or something. I don't know. 
Behind him is a super glossy techno coffin bed that clunks open, and a black, I think black, yeah, I think it's a black woman, slinks out. We never see her face clearly. No. I don't think. You, you don't, because it's kind of shot, so you see the bottom of her mouth, yeah. maybe her neck. Um, but there is um, a shot where you see her getting out, and while it's slightly blurry, you can tell that the woman in that bed is not a woman we see again. Like the actress playing oh. her. It's implied she's someone we see again later, but maybe it is a different person. Who knows? So we can't really concrete say this is this person. It probably was that person, though. Yeah, it's probably, probably meant to be her. Uh, finally, Frost's software has translated the texts and immediately also built a sweet computer animation for him. Uh, it's even added a little figure of Frost in the middle with his vampire name written on his chest. Like sort of like a, yeah. a car, like a paper cutout of a figure. But it's got his name written on it. So is his name in the prophecy? You know? Did he add that there as part of the software so that when it works it puts it... Because he didn't know what it was. So it's interesting. Or maybe he's built it for like vanity. He's like, yeah, that's me. <laughs> maybe it's completely unrelated. Yeah. Who knows? It does mimic the prophecy entirely. Yeah. I mean, it does translate it, but still. Um, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt as a bit of movie making. Magic. Um, she, the, the girl companion says, you know, come come with us to the party, you know, whatever. Uh, he goes out into the party and the police officer um, arrives from earlier and he, he's begging for forgiveness from Frost for making these mistakes. He calls one of this other vampire girl who we see once in the techno rave scene yeah. at the beginning but we don't ever get a name for her she's just kind of a blonde haired girl he calls her a bitch or something tells her to shut up before he's made into a meal for, for Frost and her uh, back at the cloud Blade walks in on Pearl oh yeah <laughs> which is uh, she, he's a massive lump of of doughy vampire um, which is a bit of a stereotype but this like if you want to know what Pearl looks like and you haven't seen the film just picture the fattest naked most naked internet troll you could ever imagine I guess more like that South Park character where he's sort a, of sort that of want like, to walk off one of them with a PC like, maybe 50 times fatter yeah um, with it's like really bad stereotypical vampire ponytail and sort of long spindly fingers, or that my that program my five hundred pound life sort of thing, mm. that sort mm. of that sort of image in a yeah. bed like can't move. Yeah, Blade lets the Doctor torture Pearl with a UV light uh, for information. Then, when they ha- finally have what they want, she decides to burn Pearl to a crisp anyway. Yep. Um. Online, Pearl is considered to be dead in many uh, websites. I did research into the characters. It uh, actually seemed ideal. But Pearl's still talking or making noises after they finish yeah. with her. Or him, sorry. So it's not super clear for the characters. He's not definitely, in that film, you would not think he's definitely dead because obviously you see him yeah. at the beginning, but almost like in the same state. He doesn't dissolve or no. anything, he's just really badly scarred. So we are going to assume that the character still exists in the universe after this point. Blade f- breaks into a further sealed room and finds what he says is the Vampire Bible, a.k.a. the Book of Erebus, oh, yeah. I think he calls it. 
they have been displayed in this, these fantastic sort of hanging glass sheet displays. Uh, and the displayed views the room, the pair hear a movement around. This turns out to be a little girl who we see for a split second at Deacon's party early. She's playing PlayStation or something. I'm not sure what, what game it is. Did he manage to spot? No, uh, I can't. Lie. It's probably something notable. Maybe it's a game made for the film, though. Um, Blade attempts to talk to her, but she quickly turns into the miniature martial arts badass. Um, he takes her down within a few seconds, though, and she's never seen again. No. It's, like, it's weird. It's just She pops up, and then she just vanishes from the film. Probably dead. <laughs> it's just a backhand around the face and she's gone I love the way he backhanded her oh, yes it's like uh, Blade takes her down very quickly and she's never seen again a bigger fight breaks out when all of Deacon's friends turn up uh, eventually they pin Blade to a post in the room uh, as one of the vampires picks up his sword only to have the trick trigger yeah. appear and slice off his hand they all laugh at their, their vampire mate for losing his hand but we get our first sort of payoff to that sword thing. But it's also doing the Chekhov's gun of kind of reminding us what the sword can do, yeah. the tricks there. Quinn takes some of Blade's silver stakes when we find out that they are proper, like, like traditional stakes, but they're made of silver, and stabs Blade in one shoulder. Before we can uh, stab Blade in the other shoulder, our Daywalker hero starts to chuckle. Yeah. before we see he's got a limo piece in with an unexplained and unexpected explosion Whistle Man arrives and with a further one liner well, it's not a great one liner but you know it's a good hero shot from him he mows down scores of vampires with a machine gun providing Blade then the Doctor a chance to, expl- uh, to escape tossing a bag bomb into the room the gang leave through a subway line so they've they've literally just blown up the room. All the vampires are in. Some of them get out. Quinn making chase across the tracks. Uh, it doesn't go well for him as expected. Uh, he 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 gets his face ground against a passing train, stabbed in the thigh, and then gets his arms sliced off again. Uh, seeing an oncoming crew of vampires, Blade reaches out a hand and holding the Doctor close to him because uh, Whistler has run off in another direction, gone through his sewer line. He reaches out his hand and grabs onto the moving train as they leave and makes an escape. I'd I'd like to note (laughs) that because of the speed the train is moving at, um, that should kill both of them. Uh, Obviously, ignoring the impossibility of vampires... And the fact that Blade is like superhuman to an extent, so maybe he can survive. Yeah, it. but I don't think they're super strong, are they? It's never, it's never anything. Like, they're stronger. They're stronger, but they're not. They're not like. They're, so, they're, they're not, not like s- mega song like. Yeah, yeah. They're no Hulk. No. Um, Blade, Blade clearly should be maybe able to survive, considering we don't know the full oh, gamut of his powers. But the Doctor, Wouldn't who he's holding on to, either her neck should be broken instantly <laughs> from the sudden jolt backwards, or her all of her internal organs suddenly be ripped about inside of her um, it's impressive that she survives and is less harmed than Blade is at the end of this turn into a vampire I guess uh, maybe maybe, maybe. maybe. We're, <laughs> giving, we're, giving, we're giving some sort of benefit of the doubt for her as well then um, it's revealed he's got a dislocated shoulder so she gives a role reversal to the, from earlier and she pops his shoulder back into place uh, 
we we have over here. Back at home base, after we see Blade inject himself with serum on the train, Blade mentions that he's 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 different. Yeah, he's not a vampire. I want to note before we go on, Blade injects himself unrestrained with serum. It didn't have the same effect either as before. As before like no violent convulsing. It kind of had. No. A, you could see a bit of like. He's, he's acting but, like it's happening but it's not it wasn't it's before he's sitting there shaking like not as energetic it's not no. like he needed to be restrained so that's it. again a bit of inconsistency there anyway we're back at home base and Whistles gives us a bit of Blade backstory so Whistle tells us that uh, he found Blade feeding on the homeless and almost mistook him for a real vampire um, but instead took him in and you know looked after him trained him um I wonder who trained Blade in martial arts because it wasn't Whistler. But uh, then Whistler uh, t- sits down, and tells us the story of his family, uh, his two children, and the vampire that came to visit one night. Uh, it's a good scene. It kind of it's short, which I appreciate. It's like a few lines, and you get an understanding of what's happened to him. Without being too explicit yeah. and too maudlin, too too. I also uh, find that Blade ages but slower. Yeah, no, he, he ages normal speed. Is it all normal he, speed? He, vampires age. Oh yes, slower, I find that too. Find but age, Blade yeah. ages at normal speed. Um, the, but that, the scene doesn't overstay its welcome, and it's filled with pathos. I think so. It's good. Um, <laughs> he he says at one point he'd stake his life, <laughs> which made me chuckle. Uh, the Doctor then visits Blade uh, upstairs, who, I found interesting, is, for some reason, sitting on a lawn chair and staring at a wall. Hey, what's on there? <laughs> I, think, I think he's meant to be he's meditating, but... No, it's not even that. He's just sitting there. Yeah. He's sitting there, just, like, slumped down. It's almost like he's just imagining what a television would look like. He's just sitting in front of the telly. It's a bit odd. <laughs> Um, then he does this to relax. She, she says he 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 says she she doesn't understand what it's like to be him. And you know, every time he kills a vampire, he gets a bit of his life back. Yeah. But you know, he's always been this, so I don't know what he's on about. Mm. Anyway, she's trying to make him he doesn't remember his mother to begin with. She's trying to make it. She's trying to humanize him, I guess. And he's like, uh, it's mm. sort of. Yeah. It's more like they have different views yeah. on on that. Back at Deacon's pad. Quinn freaks out at the gang's failure to capture Blade because Deacon wants Blade alive. May I point out that's something that's cropped up uh, since the translation. Deacon needs Blade alive. Um, Deacon cuts him off, tells him off for, for overreacting, and then comes him down. Explains to an extent what he wants, yeah. but just that he wants him alive. We we phase into the. Next scene immediately. Uh, Deacon and his girlfriend, one of his girlfriends, are covering each other, kissing and covering each other in a creamy substance. It looks to be sunblock. We assume it's sunblock yeah. because of what happens next. They've got Udo Kier. They've captured him. And he's as dishevelled as can be. They take him out into the open and rip out his fangs. As oh, yeah, Deacon yeah. kind of mocks him and talks about the future and stuff. And while covered in sunblock and many layers of protective clothing, 
they watch as the sunrise ignites the vampire's skin and burns away his flesh. Um, and he explodes in a very lovely little pop. It's just like... Yeah. The visual effects are okay in, in that vampire yeah. dissolving. Sort of like it, it, Probably the standout visual effects for the film at that time. Like the 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 fact you can see the actors there and you can see the sort of CGI's going on and it it blends relatively well but it has still like all the other effects aged quite a lot. Um, I think Udo Kier's performance as a man who's burning to death and his <laughs> skin's being frayed off by the sunlight it, it kind of sells it a bit, you know. It, his screams are really convincing. It's not just a man screaming. It's like he's taking moments to breathe and scream over and over again. You know, it's it's quite a good. For a man dying, performance. <laughs> or vampire dying. He knows his vampire Zudo here. We leave the segment. I think, like, wait, I think like this, well, I don't understand if some block there. How's it stopping from. Yeah, we'll get, we'll get to oh. that. We'll get to <laughs> that. <laughs> no, I have questions about that as well. <laughs> we leave the segment uh, with Frost's arrival at the black table from we saw earlier. He tosses the older vampire's fangs onto the table. And says that he needs twelve volunteers. Oh, uh, well, yeah. Any other thoughts on that? The the the, uh, the segment with it's all right, apart from the there's a, there's a lot of a lot of um, filling in a backstory yeah. and and character development and world building again. It's, like he's, it's almost like he's becoming a king in a vampire world. <laughs> he he wishes anyway. Well, what? Because the other vampires seem a bit scared of him as well, especially when he's throws his yeah, teeth. Like almost it, timid. Yeah. You'd think they'd be like, "What? What have you done, yeah. son? We're going to kick your ass." But they, they, they don't really they don't really react like that at all. They're, just, no. they're more shocked. They're like, "Oh, yeah." Uh, at Whistleblade Home Base, uh, the Doctor reveals that she has brought home some equipment. Blade also brought home a little gift. We're going back. Oh, We're yeah. going to take it out of our back pocket. That bit from earlier. He's brought home a fragment of the page of the Vampire Bible. You'd think that the ancient text that no vampire could translate by themselves, written in blood, would be almost useless. But as luck would have it, by a billion to one shot, Whistle Keith <laughs> can not only read the untranslatable language that took computer part of it. Part of it. He can read all of it that's there. He only has part of oh, it. Oh, is that what It's damaged, yeah. isn't it? There's only a little corner of it and then some of it's damaged anyway. And it's faded. But he can read the vampire language to begin with. What? <laughs> like, this is the, probably the biggest plot hole in there. It's like, all these vampires who have been around thousands of years can't read the very thing. A ma- Just a like random, random old guy who, who probably has no interest in the language. Maybe he's researched. But I doubt they gave him access to their, their yeah. archives so he could learn the language. But he's also managed to read the one part of all of those pages. The one corner of that one page reveals the main plot piece for the last third part of the third act. It's like Blood God, right. Apocalypse sort of stuff. It's like we know what this, the, the problem is. It tells us everything we need to know in like two lines. Of the, 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 the odds are astronomical to begin with <laughs> that he's able to read it. The fact he's able to read the one bit of the entire Bible that tells him what's going to happen is astounding. And then Blade gives him 
the hard drive he stole them from Pearl that tells him everything anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty impressive. Wish there's a man of many talents. Uh, oh, he must be gifted. <laughs> Before Blades heads out to collect some more serum, the Doctor both shows a blood unclotting agent to uh, unclotting agent. She says it's called EDTA. Um, for those who are wondering, I've done my research again. EDTA is a, a molecule called uh, a gel, uh, a chelting agent. A chelting agent is a claw-like substance that can grab and stick to other molecules. No. Think of it as kind of a molecule that's kind of like Velcro. No. That gives you an idea. Um, some types of EDTA stick to calcium, other types stick no. to... Uh, metals such as lead, for example. Uh, people take EDTA as it's sometimes prescribed by doctors to clean toxic metals such as lead and and things like that from blood. So lead poisoning oh. treats that. Uh, doctors have also used the molecule for decades to treat heavy metal poisoning. Uh, and in those cases, it's given through IV. Oh. So it gives you sort of an idea of what it does. So essentially, it's cancer-fighting medicine. Um, somehow, <laughs> it makes vampire blood explode. No idea. No, no idea why. It doesn't make sense. But still, it's, it's an effect. It's we an know up, it's, it's an upgrade for Blade. Yes. She also takes a blood, sample of Blade's blood for helping to find a cure. Blade and the Doctor... Uh, and Blade and Doctor Cough... Uh, sorry, let's go back. I'm editing that out. Blade and the Doctor watch as Whistle coughs as he works with some of his tools, Blade revealing that he has cancer. The cancer thing never comes up again. No. No relevance whatsoever. You could just have a, have a, have a cold or something. It doesn't really cough that much either. Well, no. If that's the only time you've like, seen you, him cough. It kind of explains why he's so reckless while filling yeah. the car and why like, he's smoking so much all that and why he doesn't care about that he's fighting the vampires. It's no worry to him that he's at risk to his life. But it doesn't really have an effect on the plot. No. So it's, it seems like a pointless piece of information you're given. And if you want pathos, then the story about his family is enough to explain yeah. everything, really. Uh, not long after the Doctor, checking her wounds is interrupted by Whistler, uh, who, checking her over, reveals she has about two days left. Uh, cut to Blade, taking a stroll through Ch Chinatown. So we, we're establishing probably that he goes to Chinatown to a Chinese herbal medicine place. All the time. That's why he's going to get his serum. Um, which kind of flies in the face of the idea of them tracking migrations and travelling a lot. <laughs> but, okay. Um, he's called over to a park nearby by Day Walking Deacon, uh, thanks to the help of Factor 2000 Sunblock. Uh, how it is... <laughs> That the sun doesn't burn out his eyes or the inside of his mouth. Or his hair, because his hair's got his nothing. His hair, you know. Uh, I don't know, but okay. Like, we, he doesn't have smouldering eye sockets. Fine, whatever. Uh, while holding a, a small girl hostage, Deacon and Blade have a fun sort of back and forth. Uh, Blade speaks some vampire language yeah. with Deacon, which shows he knows a bit of the language. And uh, Deacon tries to convince Blade to go with him with no violence because he needs Blade 
this goes as well as you'd expect as Blade uh, pulls a gun almost immediately out and starts firing shots at Deacon while he's holding a hostage. Deacon then tosses a small girl <laughs> as hard as possible directly into a hot dog cart, she's which no way explodes. There's no way she survived that. <laughs> she, she hits the concrete and lands in the middle of the road with maybe a couple of cuts in the back. And her head is all messy. There's <laughs> <laughs> a, a couple of bits of glass in her Like... She's the true star of this scene. Like, how does she survive? I'd have no idea. Uh, Deacon makes a break for it, but uh, as Blade goes t- to shoot him, the girl is is seen in oncoming traffic, yeah. people screaming, so Blade goes and saves her. There are other people closer to this little girl who could have saved her, but they're just too busy screaming to do anything. I mean, obviously Blade has to have his hero moment, and for the point of the narrative, we know why this is happening, but, you know, get your act together. <sighs> people help it's a little girl um so he picks her up puts her at the side of the road and just says go home after everything she's just been through he, she, he just tells her to go home she's in the middle of nowhere she doesn't have any and parents she's so calm as well isn't she she's, she's like... just confi- she's probably got brain injuries <laughs> <laughs> she may have internal bleeding but fine just go home it's fine you'll be fine um I'm sure she's fine it's fine it's fine. It's fine. This is fine. She survived. It's fine. Again, uh, impressive number of extras in this scene as well. Like there's, there's people everywhere. This is a scene where Deacon points out all the humans around him and says, you know, they're cattle and stuff. This is really cementing his views on the human race. Uh, what do you think of all this? Like, it's a good scene between the two characters. It's a good scene, but I feel like it could be done maybe at, overnight time. Maybe it, you could get away with it at night. Because the fact of 2000 stuff is like, what is going on here? Like, I think there's just re-cementing but why not, the why, idea. But why not other vampires doing it as well? Deacon feels like there's more humans around, so mm. maybe he can use them as hostages. Maybe. Again, it, it justifies hostage and the, the not wanting to get into a, a fight. Because mm. there's people, less people around, Blade is even more likely yeah, to shoot yeah. him. So um, I'm not too against that. And it's an interesting visual I think yeah. it's supposed to be like you're supposed to go wait a minute he's able to just stand around anywhere <laughs> um, but obviously we see that earlier it's cemented with him killing the other vampire earlier on maybe he just left some block on and thought <laughs> I've got a bit more time on this so maybe I'll go and talk to Blade um, and this is the first time they've ever you know, met each other so we return back to Blade's HQ this is the last time we go to the headquarters Blade base where the Doctor and Whistle Guy are discussing vampires and her cure. Uh, one she is now testing on herself. She's just randomly testing this. She says she's going to uh, use uh, a virus to rewrite DNA. Yeah. Um, just to treat things. That's how they do it. Um, she thinks she can cure herself. But she doesn't think Blade can be cured in the same way. Because he is born half vampiric. So it's part of him. Um... For her, it's like a disease. Before things can move forward, though, after injecting herself, we don't see the results of the injection. No. Um, the base is attacked by Deacon. This time, he's there himself and his gang. I don't know how they managed to find the base, but they did. Uh, Whistle and the Doctor do what they can to fight off the vampires and their familiars, but they are overwhelmed, and Whistler is repeatedly kicked in the face oh, by yeah. Deacon um, after being spouted. Uh, soon after Blade returns, he finds the damage left by the vampires in his wake, 
and finds his friend draped in bloody rags. There's also a video cassette left for him with, with, in marker pen, just flamey, written on the front. Whistler is still alive, just barely, and after sharing a few final words with Blade, explaining that Frost needs Blade to trigger the apocalypse, he asks Blade to leave him and to leave his gun with him. Blade then walks away and we hear Whistler shooting the gun off screen. He, we take that into account that he's probably killed himself, but Maybe. we don't see it. We know, we know. And Blade heads off for his revenge and to take down Frost. Blade plays the home video left for him by Deacon, explaining exactly where they're hidden before getting into a small sort of gearing up montage. Yeah. And symbolically, <laughs> lifting his pot plant up out of its pot I'm and chopping of, off the roots. I don't want to sit that part. It, it's. I think it's meant to be he's cutting the the roots off. Oh. He's cutting the vampires off at the the root. Oh, I the guess root of the pot. Maybe that makes know, sense to an extent, but it's it's really because they inobvious. they do plant that plant like in other scenes, don't they? It's almost like that plant means something to him, but they never really explain what it means to him. It's just like. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what that means. Um, maybe it's something really <laughs> obvious we're missing. We're, uh, we're not super super geniuses or anything, <laughs> but it's probably really obvious. We rejoin Deacon at his home with the Doctor, who he's holding, not really holding hostage, just sitting next yeah. to her, and there is vampire girlfriends there. And they have a bit of a back and forth, and she spills the beans on her cure, which is, I don't know how clever that is. She's trying to be cocky, I think. And, you know, there's an amount of threat to, like, you know, I could cure you without, you know, you wanting it. She says she's cured herself, but in the timeline we have here, the time frame we have here, there's not enough time for the cure to have been proven to have been worked. Because no. we haven't seen that it's been, she was told two days, it's not been two days yet. So we don't know if even she's been cured. So there's a chance that she she may know, she may not know. Maybe she's just posturing, you know. Maybe we're just supposed to take her at her word because through the film the film acts as if it has been a cure that's successful but it's never proved uh, enter Blade downstairs for the big final showdown or what is telegraphed to be the final showdown in the confusion of a number of ziv- uh, guards moving around the lower parts of the building a motorcycle smashes into the windows and Blade whips out a machine gun and shoots them down and you know a few with his trusty shotgun Next, after Deacon locks all the towers down, Blade takes out a pair of martial arts vampires. It's a good little fight scene, yeah. I think. Like, not very long. It's a good piece of martial arts, though. Um, the fight's obviously choreographed by, by Snipes himself, so, again, he's he's limited in his training. That it ends with Blade using his new blood weapons. Oh, yeah. Uh, sticking one in a, a lady vampire's eye, and another in uh, another guy's chest. I think these are probably the worst effects. Yeah, well, no, no, they're really not. They're pretty bad. Um, and I think they work better generally at selling what's happening yeah. to these vampires. But it gets much worse. Like, her eye vanishes completely. But I mean, that the entire weapon effect is like... Yeah, yeah generally. Worse. generally. Um, but they, they, they slowly bulge up and explode in a shower of goopy, Bluffy. thick bloody effects um, walking into Deacon's bedroom I've seen earlier 
Uh, Blade is introduced to the woman sleeping in his Loctite bed. And wouldn't you Adam and Eve it, it's only his mother. And a flashback happens, doesn't it? Uh, you get kind of a shot of her face. You get that flashback again. But it's to confirm it's the same actress, yeah. more or less. She survived his birth, survived, and is now a vampire in Deacon's crew. Maybe another of his lovers, possibly, Probably. it's implied, but you don't really get a lot of sexual stuff. Like the sexual stuff in the film, along the lines of sort of vampires are sexy, they have all lots of sexual stuff going on, but there's no clear you know, intercourse or anything. We don't know anything like that. Uh, while Deacon in the film uh, reveals himself to be the vampire who bit his mother all along, what's the chances? Uh, we also get Blade's name. We officially hear Blade's name, Eric, which isn't quite what you'd picture when you see that guy. No, look at him. He's Eric. so cool. <laughs> Eric is here. Eric's coming to kill us all. Um. Note here that while Deacon, uh, the Deacon ba- vampire bite reveal feels a bit, you know, cliche and heavy-handed, it's actually lifted directly from the comics. The Deacon character in the comics is the vampire who sires oh. Blades sort of as a half-vampire yeah. by biting his mother while she's pregnant. So it's, it's true to the comics still. Um, what do you think of the reveal, though? That's like, oh... Kind of makes sense in a way, I guess. I guess it gives and it makes Blade like sort of drop his guard for like mm. a second because he's he's caught by surprise because he doesn't even know himself. So it's interesting that they don't reveal that she's there at all mm. until that point. You get that, that hint from earlier, yeah. but again, I, I, she's clearly played by a different actress, yeah. so it's like you wouldn't know no. until then. Now, after arriving, Blade is uh, Blade is tackled down. He's he's knocked out. And he awakes in a, uh, a sort of big cuboid yeah. sort of prison room or prison transport. Maybe it's a metal container or something like that. But it looks a bit. Um, he's with the doctor. He he mentions he's getting sick and he needs to sue him. Uh, and he he says he's finally maybe interested in taking that cure of hers. Um, but she explains in this scene. The downsides of the cure, which is he'll lose his healing and his powers. After uh, he'll be normal, he'll be human, completely human. She says. After arriving, Blade is dragged into the temple, which is quite an impressive set actually. Yeah. It's it's like well built, large set piece. Uh, Deacon has also brought along all the pure blood vampires he can find, who are still acting as though he's utterly terrifying to them, explicably. As Blade slips into a distant thirst induced state Deacon uh, takes out what he thinks is Blade's serum uh, it's safe to say that it's not a mocking Blade and uh, dancing past the Blade's uh, dancing past Blade's attempt to trick him into taking some for himself Deacon tosses the whole serum satchel belt it's like a yeah, little slot perfectly. into a little belt it, yeah, it tosses off the edge of the temple chamber and it's, it flies across the wall and lodges as you say yeah. perfectly into a crack in the wall Deacon has Blade taken away by the pure uh, and the pure blood's taken downstairs for their parts in the ritual meanwhile he and Quinn take the doctor to an ominous pit in the temple after tossing her in she finds inside an old friend it's our old mate Curtis oh. the, the, 
the coroner from the morgue earlier. He seems quite friendly, actually. Like he's, he's a weird zombie sort of looking guy. I guess if we find out this year, no, he's not. He's, he's quite clever. Yeah. Still, we find out that some vampires don't really turn and they tend yeah, to like the, these weird. They into yeah. sort of zombies. Yeah, uh, but clever sort of zombies. Yeah. Uh, he's quite friendly and lucid, and the doctor uh, until the doctor kicks him in the face, and then he then he goes for her. Um, she beats him up with a bone, I think it is. Some bones that she finds she lying around, and using a bone shard, almost immediately jump out of the pit. And while it's nice to see this character returns, you see a, a bit more world building. It's yeah. like, what was the point of that scene? I didn't. I didn't think there's any point in that scene. Um, but it does explain why she's got the bone, though. That becomes important later. Um, meanwhile, back upstairs, Blade's mother, in what slowly becomes a more and more suggestively incestuous strip uh, of ba- Blade's clothes, has him mounted into an action figure mold. That part was really weird to me. I'm like, because the way they, they the way they was they filmed it as well. It's like she's cutting his top off. Like, yeah, it's it's supposed <laughs> to be a bit intimate. Yeah. yeah, she she pops him into an action figure mold and gets very close, uh, like too close. The box is closed around him, slicing into Blade's wrists and draining him over the temple chamber. Even further below, Deacon's blonde vampire girlfriend arranges the pure bloods around the room. Eventually losing her temper and killing one, as she does. Wait a moment. Didn't they need it exactly twelve? Yeah. Well. Yeah, that's what he says. I need twelve volunteers. You'd think that they would want them all. They oh, they must have spares. <laughs> Spare supplies. <laughs> I've got some spare vampire lords in the back. Don't worry. She lives, she then gives a terrible performance. You can see why she isn't allowed to talk too much because she's <laughs> not a great actor. So acting uh, to the remaining show. Ones. Yeah, she she's got a look to her. Uh, the now free Doctor clambers up to free Blade. Uh, as all seems lost, she offers her neck to Blade and convinces her him to feed on her blood. The CG a CGI blood. Leaks down the walls onto the faces of the pure bloods below, and clouds form quickly outside. Blade feeds on the doctor in a shot that's very like almost sexually yeah. suggestive, like almost imitates sexual intercourse, sort of in its motions and the shooting of it and everything. Um, these all seem to happen at the same time, right as drums pound, reaching a crescendo. Blade finishes his feeding, and Deacon is hit with a drop of blood on his forehead as he stands in the middle of the room then suddenly you get a shot for some reason of Blade in slow motion it's been slowed down and it sounds all like it's <laughs> obvious it's been slowed down suddenly after asking how it was his mother arrives and lunges to attack him for no reason she's just become like she's just ah, I'm going to kill you at the same time at the same instance, lightning strikes the top of the building, running down the chamber and into the vampires below. A heated vampire scratch fight takes place between Blade and his mother upstairs, with Blade eventually pinning her to the wall and stabbing her with the bone that the doctor grabbed right. from earlier. I must release you, he says. Um, the vampires suddenly have little winged skeletons come out of their mouths. <laughs> That, and you, not only that, you see their own skeletons open, like so the, yeah. their mouths open. You see them dissolving, their skeletons dissolving, and the skeletons inside the skeletons climb out and fly around the room. 
which is weird. Um, it's different. <laughs> uh, it's almost like that mummy scene, isn't it? I think where the ghost passing through all the bodies, that like yeah. Uh, as Blade's mother dies, Deacon is overcome with the vampire scally souls, as we'll call them. His eyes turning blood red. Silence. Until Blade, leaping from the temple high above, lands in the centre to finally bring us our final fight. First up is Quinn, who, looking to redeem himself against Blade for his repeated ass-kissings, is swiftly decapitated with a hidden razor on. <laughs> So we, should we quite f for for Quinn the the incompetent? You got to remember the glasses. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Quinn Quinn had been wearing Blade's glasses this whole time. They they swiftly drift into the air with the decapitation of his head, I suppose, and Blade catches them in his right hand, slipping them gently onto his eyes. <laughs> Face, whichever way you want to put it, and getting into a techno yeah. fight with the rest of the vampires. It's a good little, again, another fun little yeah. vampire fight scene. There's a good few vampires here. A bit clunky, again, there was a, there's a bit where Blade, like the first vampire just leaps at him, and Blade just lifts his leg yeah. up and kicks him out of the middle of the air. <laughs> and then he kind of does a, a sort of sweep, and the second vampire just kind of falls on Wesley Snipes. And they, they recover relatively well, but you can tell it's a bit clunky, they aren't professional. Um, like it's not taken. They've not taken their time over several months to train mm. over it. There's a notable part in this where Blade <laughs> grabs one b- vampire by the throat, rips the throat out by oh, with yeah. his bare hands, and then chucks it into another vampire's <laughs> face. <laughs> Which is I don't think anybody's ever seen in cinema before. Uh, correct me if, if I'm wrong. Um, at the same time. Uh, Frost's girlfriend takes on the Doctor but is easily defeated with some maces to the mouth. Oh, yeah. Her head explodes, I think. This is where we enter the final boss. The Frosty Blood God Blade Sword Fight. Uh, it's a serviceable sword fight, I'd say. I think we go for a bit longer, but... Yeah, it's, it's really <laughs> short. It's really short. Like This This is some sort of god and he, he's done in about two minutes. Um... Blade slices him up a few times, but loads of really the worst CGI in the entire film kind of stitches him back mm. together again. He's like, I'm, I'm, oh, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm something else now. Yeah. Uh, at one point, Frost runs to, at the camera until the footage swaps the blood stain on his face from one side of his head to the other. Right. I didn't notice that actually. Yeah, yeah that happens. But there's a definite sort of mistake in the shooting and the blood goes from there to there yeah. and then back to there again for those looking I'm putting my hand on my left and then my right side <laughs> of my face you can't see me obviously um, swiftly using his sword and it's timed trick handle to retrieve his exploding serum he tosses it overhead backwards into the crack in the wall where the serum landed so there's one payoff. The serum lands, and there's a payoff to that. And then the sword trick handle, we've seen multiple times, expanding, that pays off with that, yeah. releasing the serum. So it's nice. I like that That really long-term s- setup with the handle. You think, where's this going? He's got a, a trap handle, yeah. okay. And then a vampire gets his hand cut off. Oh, ha, ha, that's the that's thing. But actually, it's like it's all paying off this bit. 
Uh, Blade tosses his special blood bombs at Frost and utters the worst one-liner I've heard in a very long time. Do you remember what it was? No. Do you you want to read it? Just lean lean forward into this mic. Some motherfucking way to get you. (laughs) I skilled it. (laughs) Okay. Some motherfuckers always got to be trying to ice skate uphill. <laughs> I'll, I'll say that again. Some motherfuckers always got to be trying to ice skate uphill. <laughs> what does that even mean? Maybe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Is it what? Maybe because people who try to skate uphill are dumb. Maybe to say. <laughs> I don't. I t- <laughs> Bloody hell. Anyway, Deacon blows up. He gets loads of loads of these things in his face and his body, and he just explodes like the other vampires earlier, and it's all done. We can all go home for tea. <laughs> so Blade and the Doctor just choose to leave. Like nothing happened. Like nothing happened. What do you think of this final fight? This final big scene with the, the Blood God and the Apocalypse start. It's all right, but I feel like it should have been more sword fighting. I guess that was a bit over quite fast. Yeah, we, we take into account yeah. that when it was shot. I guess yeah, affects it and the budget affects it a bit. It does feel like it could have been longer or more grand. Yeah, I think we've become so used to much bigger sort probably, of set yeah, pieces yeah. and villains and stuff. That, you know, this is back then it was probably much bigger feeling compared to everything else we'd seen. Anyway, time for the epilogue. Mm. As Blade and the Doctor climb out of the new uh, to a new and windy dawn in LA, uh, LA, New York. I think we'll call it LA, New York from now on. Blade lets the Doctor know he's going to forego her cure and asks her instead to improve his serum. He says he's got work to do. <laughs> we cut to Russia, Moscow. In an opening mimicking the film's opening, a vampire man offers to surprise his lady friend, suddenly attacking her. Blade arrives to save her, uttering some Russian before techno kicks in and we fade to black. I mean, how many languages can Blade speak? Three, so far. <laughs> so we should probably know that at some point. Blade can talk three languages. There's an important note here. There is an alternative ending to the film, instead of the Russian Moscow scene. Um, the deleted scene showed a figure in the distance on another rooftop, watching Blade and the Doctor as they climb out of the temple. It was played by the writer-director, one of the two of them. Um, the figure was supposed to be well-known Spider-Man villain, uh, the living vampire Morbius. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so it's the first sort of official semi-canonical yeah. appearance of Morbius in the Marvel sort of films. The character is now going to be played, as we have recently heard, by Jared Leto, who recently played the Joker in Suicide yeah. Squad. So th- there's going to be a Morbius movie soon. So that's an interesting little little factoid anyway so what did you think overall with Blade it's good it's really good it's quite a long film as well from like the 90s like yeah because two hours is about back then was quite even though now we're used to two hours but back yeah, then it yeah. was like it, I, I say I, I felt very long going through the film for for writing notes and stuff I had to go through it like three times I guess yeah at that point it was, before it was it's quite so a, much longer than I expected it to. <laughs> before it went quite fast it's quite a fun it, it holds up pretty well actually that's why it won't hold up really well, but it actually holds up really. Yeah. 
Yeah, if you ignore this, the visual effects yeah. aging quite badly. Um, the, the introduction of all the the you know bits of information, the world building, mm-hmm. uh, the backstory stuff, it's all done when it comes to writing really, really yeah. well. Um, and pacing, it's all all pretty. Like there are little bits, like I say, the stuff with the Bible and Whistler's yeah. ability to read it with no reason, and like the bit with Blade turning up at the hospital, the morgue. It's but it's part. Of it. I guess you get that most. Yeah, you can are. explain why yeah. you can understand why these things have happened. Mm. But it's much better than people probably give yeah. it credit for being. Um, if it had more money, or if it had been filmed later, would it have been a better film? It almost feels like it. It's because of its cheaper budget. Yeah. It's a bit more scrappy, so it can do what do a bit better. And there's like it's the first of its kind, really, so it can do what it wants. Plus, you got to think it was in the nineties uh, at its point. Well, it's the very end of yeah. the nineties, but yeah. Um, I mean, could we argue that? I mean, I assume you've seen both Spider-Man and X-Men. Yeah. Like, I would say maybe it ages better than X-Men. Probably, I would have to watch X-Men again. I've not watched that now. <laughs> Are you putting yourself down for watching X-Men when I get round to the X-Men franchise? <laughs> But I'm saying I've not watched that for a long time, so I can't really remember yeah, like, yeah, the yeah. effects. I can remember the storyline probably mm. better than I could remember Blade, but yeah, they are far more PG, yeah. far more family-friendly sort of films. I think Spider-Man's probably a better film. Just maybe, just. Um, but for what it's doing, it's it's of its own sort of niche, its own kind, and it's, it's you know it's an interesting film to go back to. Yeah. Um. So we should quickly look at the key timeline points before we insert them into the timeline we eventually once this series this pilot series is done we're going to have a physical timeline or digital timeline on a website somewhere um so feel free to keep an eye out for that <laughs> we're going to add slowly to the timeline but for this film um the timeline points are 1967 exact date unknown Blade, re- uh, uh, Blade is born by C-section after his mother was bitten. 22nd of August 1998, day after the release mm. of the film. Uh, Blade raids the blood rave. Uh, later that night, Dr. Karen Jensen and Curtis are bitten by the reanimated vampire Quinn. Blade rescu- uh, rescues Karen Jensen from the hospital and she's uh, treated for vampire bite by Blade's friend Whistler. 22nd of August, 19, uh, 23rd of August, sorry, 1998, Blade and Karen Jensen enter an unnamed nightclub, finding the pages from the Vampire Bible. With Whistler's help, they escape with plans for an unknown ritual, having destroyed multiple religious vampire artifacts, including the bulk of the pages from the Book of Erebus. On the 24th of August, 1998, the morning of the 24th sees Deacon Frost murder fellow vampire Gitano via extreme sun exposure and Blade's mentor Whistler is killed seemingly after Dr. Karen Jensen tests a possible vampire cure on herself the cure is not yet recorded as being successful Uh, 25th of August 1998 Deacon Frost successfully manages to resurrect the vampire god La Magra we didn't mention its name earlier but that's its name but is killed by Blade before this can have an impact on the greater population at large. 
we finish up in the timeline, date unknown, likely 1998, probably a few weeks after the end of the main storyline, as some unknown time after this blade arrives in Moscow. In Russia. Next in the timeline, we will be hitting episode two and looking at with my whoever my next guest is, as I've not got one yet. Blade Two. I don't does that have a subtitle, do you know? I think it does. I think have you ever seen Blade Two? I have seen all of the all the blades. Oh, I've never seen Blade Two. So. Have you not? No, I've seen it's, all of the other blades. It's very different. Two. Yes, I'm sure <laughs> it is. I know I know enough about it to know it's gonna be different. Uh, and we will continue to look at the Blade universe as a whole and hopefully get more idea of the timeline for for the timeline. But until next time, thank you very much, Limbert, for joining me on this first step of our long journey through the history of everything that's ever going to have happened. <laughs> and thank you all for listening. I'll... I'll Ask you if is there anything you want to tell people about? Anything, websites, things, or emails, no. or Twitters, anything at all? Don't want my Twitter handles. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. And I will thank you myself. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at Sibutsu, S E I B U T S U. And find me on several other places under the same name. And uh, keep an eye out for the next episode of The Timeline. Till then, thank you. And see you in the future. In the timeline. And yes. <laughs>